Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Be There in Five podcast. I'm Kate Kennedy, your host. I'm a Chicago-based entrepreneur, writer, author, pop culture commentator, podcaster, all the things. But honestly, none of that matters because for today, what matters is that I, Catherine Kennedy, am a Taylor Swift super fan. Always have been, always will be. I've dedicated a decent amount of real estate to Taylor Swift on this podcast, and we've taken a few months off. I had a lot of Taylor Swift-heavy episodes around the promotion of the album Lover, and ironically, I talked about it most in the early phases when it was, you know, okay, I understand why she has the singles she does. I understand the point of me. I think most of her super fans, like, that wasn't our favorite song. And what's confusing for me is, like, I spent so much time talking about uh, me and You Need to Calm Down and, and The Archer. But my the, the best part of this whole era has been the latter half that I haven't really even discussed. It's almost like, like, if I were, like, to compare it to, like, movies or something. Because movies are good in different ways and for different audiences. I feel like if me is like the Trolls movie, then the, the rest of Love or the album is like freaking Citizen Kane. It is, it's a masterpiece. And like, I'm, it just so, it was, it was, a, it was very different than what I thought was going to happen. And you heard in my reaction podcast how blown away I was, and I'm still largely blown away by it. And I hope I can still add value in terms of what I tell you. I guess it'll just, if anything, be different takes on things, but what I want to do is since it took me three months, we're doing like a Q1 update of a lover. But honestly, I feel like this whole time I've kind of been like, you know what? You, uh, you can't hurry lover. You just can't. Just like the Dixie Chicks told us who covered Phil Collins, who covered the, the Supremes. You know, I, I like 14 versions of can't hurry love on my iPod, but not iPod. Is this, <laughs> this is 2003. I have about three versions on my hit clips. The, uh, tiny device you can wear on your hip that uh, costs about $10 a song and you only hear 30 seconds of it. Those things are weird. Um, But I just, I don't know. There's a bunch of reasons why I hadn't got to this, gotten to this yet. Um, And I want to just like take our time. I want to talk a lot of like Taylor theory. I want to catch up on like um, that, you know, the Rolling Stone interview that I thought had so many important points and the Apple music interview and the Scott and Scooter thing. And like, just kind of like, like talk about what's been going on in the in lover fest. Like I, all of these things that have happened, I haven't really addressed on the podcast because I kind of stopped talking about Taylor Swift in August. Um, to just kind of like take a minute, take a step back. Um, I felt like, you know, I almost didn't want people coming to me as if I was some sort of authority because I never was and I never intended to make it sound like I was. I certainly have strong opinions. Um but I think there's a lot of people that do much better research and are much better fans than I am probably. And really my goal is never to be like the best or most informed fan. My goal is actually always more so to just like have fun and to represent the fan kind of in the middle, like the person, you know, we operate in a world of extremities and we have the hyperbolic dead, dying RIP tombstone tweeting from the afterlife and the canceled of it all, the two opposite ends of the spectrum. I think there are a lot of fans out there that are like me and, you know, like, I have a lot of stuff going on and like can't really spend a ton of time, you know, in the depths of the Internet, reading every single detail, even though we'd love to. And even though the people with the fan pages make the incredible content for us to consume, um, we can't really dedicate that kind of time. We don't really spend that as much time in those places. So we can't really like reach out to her. And she doesn't like, you know, I don't think a lot of the middle type fans get a lot of the perks, but that's okay because the people that dedicate their time in life, like definitely deserve it. And I want to be more so a person that like, 
spends a little time in the depths and can synthesize it for you and can speak with a great deal of passion as like a long-term fan that has a reservoir of information. But also like I am a casual fan and I am here for fun. And, um, you know, it's fine if you don't agree with my interpretation of a song or whatever. Uh, I just like wanted to make sure it was still fun. And when I felt like it was getting to a place where I was getting like one too many scathing emails and feeling like people were getting frustrated with me for not saying the right things and but honestly, now, like, I'm like, I'm happy to be back and happy to revisit this and like, just spend some time with it. So um, don't feel like I'm like leading up to something I'm not saying or like get to the songs. I'm, I want to just like talk about different things where I stand, how my mind's changed, where it hasn't changed and go just a little bit more in depth than I was able to the first time, like during that quick run through. So what we're going to do is I'm going to have two episodes, one this week, one next week. It'll be earlier next week, though. You know, if you're traveling for Thanksgiving, you're winding down for the holidays give you a good three hours where we go through this album at least because um you know like I said you can't hurry lover and also there's 18 songs so I think I'm gonna do like the front nine the back nine uh I actually don't even know where that ends we'll see where it goes it's a it's a you know golf term very sporty over here and uh so yeah this will be part one part two will be next week uh if you're not a TS fan like totally fine come back. We have like awesome guests coming up. I'm going to New York and recording with people. I have my live show that'll be, um, that some of the recording will be played here. I just like, there's a lot of like fun things going on and I'm like so excited and please stick around even if you're not a TS fan. Also, I, uh, I always talk about other things besides the topic at hand, you know? So maybe listen anyway, maybe, maybe I'll reinvigorate your interest in love or who the hell knows, but I appreciate you being here. I appreciate your patience and um, I hope you don't mind just taking a low and slow walk through some of uh, T-Swift's finest. I guess all I'll say is I find Lover, relative to like reputation, to be beautifully straightforward. And this era, I'm kind of choosing to believe what she tells me. We've had such an interesting evolution with like, you know, Red being her first more modern, sleek, you know, mature album coming out of like a, a super girly purple halter dress ponytailed country career. Uh, you know, she matures in red. She wears schoolboy shoes. She has on high-waisted shorts. I miss the tour. I'll never forgive myself. We move to 1989. She becomes a pop superstar. She has her squad. She gets deeper into the boy crazy narrative. She produces the, one of the finest albums of our of our time. I have that concert changed my life. Um, the bonus songs are better than the leading singles off of most artists' albums. Uh, then we get to reputation after like, uh, you know, S hits the F and we're like, hello, dark passenger. What's going on? I, you know, it's no secret. I, uh, I love reputation. I am a reputation stan. I have always under, I've always understood the album. I love the album. I think it's so underrated. Um, and I, you know, obviously I love it for different reasons because I think it's so much more layered and has more depth than um, some of her other albums, because as you also know, I will forever be hung up on that prologue where she said all of the slideshows about, you know, attributing men to songs would be wrong, like it was as simple as a paternity test and that we think we know her. But the truth is, we only know the side of her she's chosen to show us. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's happening? Like, so she's basically telling us none of these songs are about the dudes like Tom and uh, Calvin and Joe and whatever. So like I I, I not I not only uh, analyzed reputation, I freaking excavated it and I had a great time and I did a lot of that on this podcast. Um, you know, for Lover, I think it's uh, to me kind of represents what I've come to, you know, how I, the way I've come to feel about it is 
the essence, the energy, the, the general like vibe I get from the, both the era and the music of reputation to now is the same sort of transition. I think a lot of us um, endure when going from a series of, you know, maddeningly complicated relationships, you know, from one to the other on and off, having to constantly fight for something. And then all of a sudden, when you're in a relationship that's like, that's, a, that's healthy, that's strong, that's simple, it's pretty straightforward. And it's just a lot more calm. And I kind of feel like that's the difference between these two albums is just in terms of the chaos that was going on in her life, period. But also romantically, you know, if she is as happy as she says, she said on the record, she's been in a three year relationship. She put it in her journals. And I, I guess, as a journaler and like a writer, I think journals are so sacred that when I saw that she included a journal entry about London and about Joe and having been together for three months, I was kind of like, OK, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, I never really knew what to make of their relationship because I felt like they kind of popped out only when it made sense for promo. And I think that, you know, why what I was always saying with like rep and, you know, parts of 1989 and whatnot, like is I see what I see and I or I hear what I hear and I can't unhear it. And on this record, I just hear that she's happy and stable and that things are going well and that love has its ups and downs and its dimension, but it's just not marked with the same intensity and drama that the other albums are. And even just, like I said, her energy is is so different now. And um, I don't know, I'm kind of just in this place where I'm like, I want to just let it be and like enjoy the music and not like overthink everything. It's like when you have no information, you have to draw conclusions. When you have information, you're given more conclusive evidence. And I think instead of being like an investigative reporter, which I largely felt like I needed to be uh, before we had TS7, um, I feel like she's painting a pretty clear picture. And until I feel otherwise, until I feel like there's some sort of subliminal messaging or things she's trying to say that like the general public isn't getting across, I will. I still hold strong that so much of reputation was not about Joe, just timeline wise. And I think that's what drove a lot of Swifties crazy. But here I am telling you, I think, you know, most of Lover is. So there you go. It's just like, I'm not uh, crusading for any uh, reason or agenda. Um, I really just try to talk about what I see and what I hear and what makes sense to me and what lines up. And um, reputation just didn't really line up to any uh, media facing narrative we were getting. And she told us that the side of her she chooses to show us is different than who she is. Felt like we had a lot of license to, um, you know, kind of run wild with interpretation there. But this is like in writing saying she's in a three year relationship. I'm not crazy. I, I'm just like, great. She's happy. I'm happy. Let's just, you know, for once, do the thing she probably wanted us to do the whole time, which is focus on the music. And the further I get into creative pursuits, I'm kind of like, man, that would suck to have all your hard work minimized to just like these really specific romantic narratives that you don't even have control over and aren't true. Um, and I know I'm the worst offender. I mean, I mean, what do you, I love a conspiracy, but the, I, honestly, the more I think about it too, like, I don't know Taylor Swift, um, but like, I do know her, you know what I mean? That's how we all feel. And um, if I know anything about her, I would be shocked if girlfriend doesn't love a conspiracy. Like, I think she respects all, all of us deep divers one as much as the next, as long as we're not hurting anybody. Because if you're trying to tell me that she's never like poured a glass of Sauve Blanc and done a three hour deep dive into the origins of the Denver airport, you know, I, I, I'd i be shocked if, if she doesn't spend some of her nights off when she's like ordering Chinese takeout and hanging with Meredith, Olivia, Benji and the gang. And she's not just like 
you know, doing a three-hour full-on Wikipedia loop like the rest of us that probably, like, starts at marsupials and ends at chemtrails. Like, you know, like I know she's just like us. We're curious. We, we like to learn things, and we get ourselves into rabbit holes we seldom can get out of. And I like to think she's no different. I think a lot of the theories out there, too, like, you know, I love the Kaler blogs. I think they're so interesting. I think they're so well-researched. Um, I, I, I'm one of those people that like, even if, whether I agree with you or not, I respect the hell out of people who like really dedicate a lot of time to something, research it and synthesize it well. Uh, because like I've always said, like if you, you know, if you can't give a 10 minute PowerPoint on a very specific subject, you're uniquely passionate about to a group of people about a thing that they've never even heard of. Then, like, are you living? And I, I felt that way for a long time, be, having been, you know, sifting through through the weeds of Tumblr since like 2014. Uh, but now these things are pretty mainstream. They could be shut down if they wanted to. And I think I've put off doing this podcast because, like, I haven't really been in the depths of like Reddit and Tumblr and like reading all the analysis stuff because I just like the album and I just wanted to enjoy it. And like, I think too, and like hearing about she's got a lot of shit going on. Like, I'm worried about her mom. She's at an interesting point in her career. She's got a lot going on with Scott and Scoots and Co. That's just like stressful as hell. And I'm just like, you know what? Maybe I'll, you know, like, let's just enjoy. I like, yeah. I mean, I just, it's like, I don't have a heart about it. But like, I also think I've been hard on Taylor Swift, you know, for letting like the haters be louder than the lovers at times. And, um, you know, in one, in the reputation era, not doing press and stuff, I felt like such a response to the people that didn't like her. Then I felt kind of felt like all the ones that did were left high and dry, but now I artistically understand it. But like, truly, I was, it was getting to a point where I was getting emails from people that were like mad at me that I suggested that Taylor Swift had anxiety and like how messed up it was for me to like peg me- mental illness onto her. I was like, well, A, she said she did. And they're, they're talking about my review of The Archer. And I'm like, and B, that song is like, uh, one giant uh, anxiety blue ball of of pent up emotion fe- and fear that like never happens. Like literally the song builds to nothing, just like anxiety builds this feeling of impending doom and nothing happens. Like pretty sure that's a clear message. And like when Pete, like fans, like the, 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 the anger and rage and the mean stuff they'll say, if they don't agree with you in defense of her, I'm like, she would never want you doing that. You know what I mean? And it's kind of weird. Like, I really did have to separate it because there was like several instances where I was like, I don't want this. <laughs> um, it's just not worth it. And it's like, I love she's I'm a fan of Taylor and it's a part of what I love to talk about. But it's um, it got to a place where it felt a little bit too consuming. And um, my point is, like. Obviously, I still, you know, feel completely comfortable like giving people constructive criticism like that's part of this podcast is I think it can be done in a way that's like not mean and it's like uh, founded. Um, but like receiving some of the crazier, more irrational things, I'm like, oh, I, th- I think I need to be less critical of how people receive criticism because it is so personal. And it does like take a minute to be like when you're well-intentioned to just be like, what, what the hell, man? Like, I'm just I, I'm just trying to have fun. Like, just keep it breezy. I don't know why. Like, it's just it is weird. It's very hard. It's, it's very distracting is my point. And I can't even imagine being like a person that just talks about her getting like a fraction of a fraction of what she gets on a daily basis in such a high volume and like how that would wear on you and how you could really just like almost it would get to the point where you have to have somebody else reading your stuff because like you can't tell from a subject line or a message or a letter or whatever, like what's going to be constructive and nice and what's not what's going to be like horrible. And I just kind of feel for her. I don't know. It's funny. Like, I can't even believe I'm getting that some of that vicariously by just talking about her. It's quite fascinating. But you know what? I forgot that you existed And I thought that it would kill me But it didn't
I just think this is such a great palate cleanser. I don't remember what I said about it the first time. It, but the being the intro to the album, you're kind of like, oh, this is different. But uh, it really, to me, it's like a less bratty, this, you know, for lack of a better word, this is why we can't have nice things. Because I think that one of the marks of, of maturing is that you realize uh, when you're giving somebody a reaction, when they can affect you, you're giving them a great deal of power. Um, and perhaps the thing that is the most offensive going forward that you can do to really get back. I mean, they say the best revenge is living well, but I'd, I'd argue uh, the best revenge, the way to drive somebody insane is apathy. There is no nothing more offensive than not responding, than not caring, than being utterly aloof. And I think, you know, her past albums were so like situation response, situation response. And Reputation was a giant response, and it was a caricature, uh, uh, rather. like a, Well, I guess she literally was playing a character. And um, I think this is kind of just like, you know what? A lot of that stuff really affected me. I thought it would kill me. I went through some dark times. I've addressed it in my music. But this album is not about the things I hate. Is it about? It's about the things I love. And the way to address the things you hate that don't affect you anymore is not, like, not to forgive them, not to speak lovingly to them, not to give them the satisfaction of you know, your time and forgiveness, but rather to just be like, yeah, it's not love. It's not hate. It's just indifference. Like whatever. Like, honestly, I think it's pretty brilliant. I just think it's a delightful, semi-mature, passive aggressive middle finger of a song that's like, see ya. I don't know. I just am like, I I like this song. I heard it playing in like a super chic, like, like sushi restaurant, like, like a dark one where like things are like on a conveyor belt. Like they actually weren't, but like it kind of felt that way. And like everybody is like dressed really nicely like they're about to go to a club you're like it's tuesday and everybody's like kind of like looking over the person they're with like see who else is there while like stuffing a godzilla roll in their mouth and i'm like why are you eating sushi on a date there's nothing worse i you can't take bites that big on a on a first date gang like you just can't i'm not not because it's not ladylike just because it's like it's kind of gross <laughs> i just don't like to see somebody like full-on chubby bunny when i'm trying to like be romantically interested in them you know what i mean anyway it sounded really good in a sushi restaurant is my point it was like chic and sleek and da-da-da. And I just like, it was, it was just like cooler and lower key than, this is why we can't have nice. I mean, I, I'm being such a bitch about that song. It's not bad. It's just like, it's like a meme. You know what I mean? Like I just, the, t- the, the title's so long and it's like meme It's hard to explain it. Like, you know, I don't really like Brad Paisley. He like takes a, a you know, a quote from like AIM Buddy Info or like a Rachel Hollis Pinterest board and like makes it into a song. He's like, to the world, you may be one person, but to one person, you may be the world. And it's like, OK, I've been writing that on my away message since, you know, 2003. But it's your idea, Brad Paisley. You know, we sorority girls basically minted on, on mugs and in picture frames the the gorgeous, stunning, you know, Keats level quality quote. Live for the nights you'll never remember with the friends you'll never forget. But no, Brad Paisley takes it and says, have some of the best times you'll never remember with me alcohol. And it's like, God, what a genius. And I just am like, geez, Brad, get some ideas of your own. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't hate Brad Paisley. Kind of bummed he and Kimberly Williams Paisley, you know, didn't work out because everything was so charming. But also I just think a lot of his songs like ticks, like a little bit predatory. Also, I think that his career is like more weird Al than traditional country you now. Like he makes joke songs and I, I just, I don't know, whatever. Okay, moving on to the most perfect song there ever was. You may have heard a little instrumental orchestra version in the intro. I'll play it toward the end. It's from YouTube. Hopefully I'm promoting them. I'm not trying to take anything, but literally sat here last night and wept while I listened to orchestra versions of Cruel Summer and uh, Cornelia Street and All Too Well. Holy crap. As you all know, 
I'm obsessed with like vitamin string quartet and like violin or like strings versions of pop songs. Cause like, you know, you think you're sick of Justin Bieber. Sorry. You hear it on the strings. You're like, damn. I, like I've, I've told you, like, look up, listen to blank space in a string quartet and like your mind will be blown. There's something really fun about having a classy party where like there there's uh, instrumental versions of pop songs because people are like, oh, is this Mozart? And like in your head, you're like, LOL, this is Wiz Khalifa. So, yeah, look up instrumentals on YouTube. It's it's actually uh, quite moving. Um, I need like the Trans-Siberian Orchestra to cover Lover. I would have, I'd lose my mind. God, I love that percussion. Well, Cruel Summer, my God, you guys know this song is everything to me. I love it so much. I, it's perfect. It is, I mean, I just like the only problem I have is it's really hard to sing. Even in like the version I rewrote, like when Taylor Nation prompted people to do Lover letters and write like what they love about the album on like that stationery, which did they ever pick a winner? Because I definitely didn't win, but um, I decided to, you know, carve out a cash 90 minutes on a Sunday to rewrite the lyrics to Cruel Summer for this contest. And by that, I mean, I rewrote the lyrics to be about how I, you know, make my way through the album, but can't stop coming back to track two because I like Cruel Summer so much. You know, if I'm feeling loose toward the end of this, uh, perhaps I'll sing it to you. But I couldn't even figure it out in my like, it's just so uncomfortable to sing. And like, this is was this was part of my speculation about um, Loverfest which I don't even know if we've talked about, but we don't need to get into right this second. Um, I actually think a lot of my opinions about Loverfest changed after the Apple Music interviewer. Um, she did, you know, seem to note that her mother's health or somebody in her family's health, there's some serious issues going on. It's more volatile. It makes complete sense that she wouldn't want to be, you know, on, a, on an arduous tour where she her presence is like required. She can't scoot out at the last minute. Um, obviously, I think we all acknowledge like, our family, friends, physiological needs come first. And like, I don't care if I was getting a freaking medal of honor. If my, you know, some, there was an issue with my mom, I would absolutely drop everything. And I support her to absolutely do the same. And I think we also have to remember like, um, you know, people in other countries in Brazil and in Western Europe and like a lot of these places have gotten the shaft album after album. And the U S has been like really spoiled with dates. And I think like for her to do something different, I actually, I think it's totally fine. And especially from the narrative of like her mom being sick, like a lot of people speculated that. Um, I was confused because I definitely had heard from like a few people that like worked at stadiums and stuff that she had had dates booked and then she didn't. So I was kind of wondering if something happened with like, you know, whether it's with uh, Scott and Scooter, with her mom, whatever. But regardless, it's like, it is what it is. I have tickets for both um, and I can't wait. I probably don't worry. I'll, whatever one I don't go to, I will get in the hands of a person who deserves to go. I'm not trying to hoard tickets. I just I wasn't able to get tickets myself. And I have two very kind friends who grabbed me one. Um, but anyway, I uh, I I'm, more, I'm interested to see how this like plays out acoustically. It's not as bombastic as reputation. It doesn't really warrant that same style of concert. Doesn't mean it's going it, to but it'll be so beautiful in the sunlight. And I just need to figure out a way to be like, and as you the shape of your body, I'm blue. You know what I mean? Because then we have I Forgot That You Existed. Or no, sorry. Then we have um, the, uh, I Think He Knows It. It's like, oh my gosh, falsetto. And then it's like, um, uh, Cornelius is like, and baby, I get. And it's like, oh, I sound horrible singing these songs. And uh, anyway, um, I'll play like a little bit of this uh, <laughs> music if I can. Um I just don't want to get in trouble, but it's still fun to listen to it because I get, like, jacked up about it again. It gives me ideas. Um, but, yeah, like, okay, so first things first, or fifth things fifth, um, 
with a chorus, a lot of people think that it's people get really confused by this part. figured it out but for you like you know regular people that haven't really overthought this the lyrics are it's new comma the shape of your body period and verse it's blue this feeling i've got period and verse and then it's like it's cool that's what i tell them and verse no rules unbreakable heaven and verse and i say that because a lot of people are like the shape of your body is blue like uh that that's what I tell them, no rules. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess that's not that crazy. But like, no, the 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 body is the shape of the body is new. The feeling is blue. It's cool is what she tells them. No rules is unbreakable heaven. Um, and I think that that is like a little confusing when you first hear the song. OK, so Cruel Summer is interesting to me for several reasons. On her Sirius XM interview, she said she wanted it to feel like a uh, like a kind of brief summer romance that has been doomed from the start. And the fact that she says it's doomed from the start and the fact that in the song she says, um, I snuck in through the garden gate every night that num- summer just to seal my fate. Like, see, like ba- they're that, that whatever that is, they're not together anymore. I, so no, you know, I know I said I wasn't going to paternity test. It's literally impossible, but I just think that that song is very obviously not about her current relationship. And, um, it's about a much more volatile, intense, uh, situation. I think from seal my fate, I think from her saying it was doomed from the start, like uh, the way she's talked about, it doesn't seem like it's accurate. And I think what's confusing is, you know, very soon following in the song Lover, she says she's loved, you know, him for three summers now, honey, but I want them all. It would kind of suggest like, well, maybe the cruel summer was the first, but I'm just not seeing the connection there because as you all know, I'm I'm on a quest. I, I want to like Joe Alman. I've been, I've been trying to like watch more interviews about him. He's kind of an intellectual and he's very into like film. You know what I mean? Like he wouldn't call something movies. He'd like go to the cinema. Um, but he... I was, I'm interested in the movie Harriet. I love U.S. history. I, and I'm interested in how this is going to be portrayed. And I was watching interviews about it. And his co-star, because Joe plays like a horrible slave owner, his co-star was like, it's almost so unbelievable that Joe would ever um, thrive in this role because he is the nicest guy, like verbatim. She said this five times. She's like, he is just so nice. Like, he's the nicest guy I've ever met in my life. Like, he's just so nice. And like, it was funny hearing them talk about him, about how just like he's so damn nice. And that's too why I'm like bad, bad boy, shiny toy with the price. Like, I just don't think that this aligns whatsoever. Personal opinion. And like, I know there's theories of being like, well, maybe she was with Tom or Calvin or somebody. And when she met him and like wanted to be with him, they were like sneaking around together. And I'm like, I don't know if we're like glorifying that, like the cheating in that. So you know what I mean? Like, that's a little weird. But also, I don't want to keep secrets just to keep you. Like, why would that have to be such a secret? You know what I mean? I, I if it was Joe, I, that's what I don't totally understand. I see ties between this song and a few other songs. I feel like Cruel Summer um, is almost like the negative, dramatic uh, low. And Cornelia Street is the high of the same relationship that is actually not the one she's currently in. And I know when I first did the um, analysis of Lover, I thought I was mishearing Cornelia Street. And I thought she was saying, I'll never walk Cornelia Street again. She's saying, I'd never walk Cornelia Street again if this doesn't work out. I feel like the fact that Cornelia, Cornelia Street is like the city screams your name and the person like uh, is playing games, leading her on. She tries to leave, goes through the tunnel. 
comes back. They talk on the roof, whatever. Like I almost, I don't know. I, I, this is, I know nobody's going to agree with me on this, but I see this as two sides of a coin of a relationship that actually is not still active and that was more volatile in nature. And both songs um, take place in the back of a car, um, drunk on the drinks, stronger than the drinks at the bar. And then like, I'm drunk in the back of the car, crying like a baby coming home from the bar. And she lived in Cornelia street in the summer of 2016. Um, so, you know, it's hard to say, I, I don't know if there's an actual connection, but anyway, I think, um, there's also, you know, I'm always waiting for you to be waiting below there. It's a Romeo and Juliet, Juliet nod. We all know in the song love story, her, the premise of it, she was like, I want, I wanted to rewrite it. Like what if they could be together? But like, I think in this context, it's almost the a metaphor for being doomed from the start because Romeo and Juliet uh, were built to fall apart. And um, obviously, they, they, their extenuating circumstances made their relationship fundamentally unable to work, as Cruel Summer also uh, suggests. I also think like she uses headlights in songs when something secret like is going on. It's kind of this representation of no one being able to know. And we know she was sneaking in through the garden gate, but also like in style midnight, you come and pick me up, no headlights. They're like, it's kind of a couple that never goes out of style is like on and off. Um, and then treacherous, which I think is one of her more curious songs about in terms of like, it's in, it's actually quite underrated and it's incredibly intense and it can be expressive of like a new type of experience or like a person you can't be with, like put your lips close to mine as long as they don't touch. I know that like, a lot of uh, Kaler type of blogs talk about this song a lot as being like a representation of a person that's kind of like experimenting. Um, but like, put your lips close to mine as long as they don't touch. Uh, out of focus, eye to eye to the gravity is too much. I'll do anything you say if you say it with your hands. And I'd be smart to walk away, but you're qu quicksand. And then like, all we are is skin and bone, just trained to get along forever going with the flow, but your friction, like she's doing something against the flow. And all we are is skin and bone is like, like nothing matters. Like we're both humans. Like why, why are we like, you know, you could see that as being like, we're not a gender. We're not a sexuality or not whatever. We're just like people. Or you can see it as like, you know, all the th reasons you're wrong for me um, or why I'm going with the flow and friction. Or maybe it was like a cheating situation. Who the hell knows? Anyway, that song is like incredibly beautiful. Um, and anyway, that song has two headlights shine through this sleepless night and I will get you, get you alone. Um, and I think the headlights in that sense are like, um, in the middle of the night, like that's what she sees. And that's when she's allowed to like meet up with people and when it has to be like stealth. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading way too much into that. Other motifs in the song, like she says no rules in breakable heaven. Um, and like in lover, I think what's interesting, she talks about rules again, but like, this is our place. We make the rules. I don't know. I kind of love the juxtaposition of like trying to be chill and whatever and like no rules it's whatevs but like when you're in a relationship getting to like have your own like uh rules and personal subjective love the your 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 mode of operation the things you do the things that are important to you and I just like almost think that's a cute juxtaposition of how rules can be um a really negative thing or a really positive thing uh obviously blue is like a huge motif in this album it kind of always is was what she does like back in march i thought this album was going to be called blue because um like the opposite end of the spectrum of red and it was almost like this is me in a happy calm serene place and like love can be blue and love can be red and what's ironic is red is often associated with the passion and blue is often associated with the sorrow but i'd argue that uh you can flip those and with passion 
uh, with those extreme highs come extreme lows because lust is hollow in nature and uh, passion fades. And uh, what's left is often the other extreme, the, the anger, the frustration, whatever. But with blue, sorrow is different from anger. It's different from rage. It happens in any healthy relationship. But on the flip side, there's also calm and there's serene and there's like cool and there's just like so much pleasantry associated with blue. So I think like it's confusing and she uses it in different contexts. But she obviously says um, it's blue. This feeling I've got. We have Miss Americana. So sad we paint the town blue. We have faded blue jeans in London. Boy, we have I blew things out of proportion. Now you're blue and afterglow like. I, I there's just a lot of blue references, um, which I think are interesting. Like almost and I'm not even naming all of them, like almost a disproportionate. Oh, um, paper rings. Uh, I'm with you, even if it makes me blue, which takes me back to the color we painted your brother's wall, which um, when rep came out, there was this like cute montage video. And we were like, oh, my God, she's doing better than she ever was. And one of the videos was of her painting a wall blue, which very cute. Um, anyway, I'll move on from Cruel Summer. I mean, like, I just have so much I could say about it. With the lyrics, I don't know anything you guys don't know. I'm just telling you what I think of it. Um, Fever dream high in the quiet of the night. You know that I caught it. Bad, bad boy, shiny toy with a price. You know that I bought it. Again, don't think this is very um, Alwyn-esque, but maybe. Uh, killing me slow out the window. I'm always waiting for you to be waiting below. Devils roll the dice. Angels roll their eyes. What doesn't kill me makes me want you more. I've talked about most of those. Devils roll the dice. Angels roll their eyes. I still feel like there's a layer here that I'm not getting. But to me, it's like, you know, when Michelle Tanner had like two versions of her, that one was in the moto jacket with the bandana. And when she had those that like curly hair and that Kirsten Larson American Girl doll crown, it was like a wreath for like Sweden, like a Swedish holiday, like St. Lucia. I know I talk about this all the time, but it's like one of my favorite elements of nostalgia because I was such an American Girl super fan. But I just got um, <laughs> I bought the cookbook for the American Girl Doll cookbook um, because I'm obsessed with that. Like when I was a kid, I was such a brat and I was like, I know Kirsten looks like me and like, thanks grandpa for buying it. I was like six. I was like, thanks for buying it for me. But like, I want Samantha, that girl's bougie as hell. And I want that four post bed. Kirsten's mattress is made of hay. For her birthday, she got a bucket. Like her brother's name is Lars Larson. And like, literally her friend, like the, the grand opening scene, like Samantha was like being waited on by her butler. And Kirsten was like, well, my friend died of cholera on a low budget riverboat. And I'm just like, I can't like all I wanted when I was a kid is like to have the rich American girl doll. Like Kirsten was not taking me to places I'd never been. She was really bumming me out on the Minnesota frontier. And I wanted to buy this cookbook. I found like a vintage one from 1991 because Samantha's recipes are like, Beef tenderloin served by her servants that weren't allowed to speak to her, nor were they allowed to speak to the hostess. It's mashed potatoes. It's green beans. It's basically basically like the thing that I never get invited to that I that I so love, which is a Friendsgiving. And um, Kirsten's recipes are um, porridge. <laughs> like one recipe is hard boiled eggs. It's so depressing. It's like um, there's no running water in log cabins like Kirsten's. Instead, children had the job of hauling water from the well or a nearby stream. In winter, the water would freeze and ice had to then be melted on a basin in the stove. Dishwater had to be heated on the stove, too. There were no detergents. God, no. Pioneers made soap from lard. And sometimes they scoured pans with nearby sand from birch twigs. I'm just like, what is it? Like, this is not aspirational. I would not read this blog. This is not, this is not gal meets glam. This is gal meets fam. By that, I mean famine. Gal meets famine. Th like, this is so depressing, and it makes me laugh so hard. Like, while Kirsten was hiking in the Minnesota snow with her snowshoes that I think she got for her birthday in addition to the bucket, and the bucket was only functional for the child labor because she had to go get the water to even be able to cook that was frozen, then heat the water. I mean, 
like literally like girlfriend could not have a more difficult time with all things water related meanwhile samantha has an entire section dedicated to how her servants weren't allowed to talk there's a section dedicated to finger bowls if you watched um hallmark's a royal christmas featuring the one the only the unmatched Lacey chabert where jane seymour you know is looking down on her you know impossibly plebeian self for drinking out of the finger bowl that's when i learned what a finger bowl was and i remember my dad i was watching with my dad he's like you don't know what that is and i was like i had kirsten what do you want from me i was made to be under grand mary slim and not papa's you know ring of child labor but what do you want from me (laughs) um anyways this this (laughs) this uh cookbook is so funny and it's vintage 1991 minted no it's pretty used but i got it as a you know spoiler alert a giveaway at my live show giving away a few of Kate's favorite things. And uh, I'm obsessed with this book. But anyway, what was I talking about? That's that's going to be hard. Um, Michelle Tanner. That was Michelle Tanner. <laughs> I hope you know what scene and flaws I'm talking about. But anyway. Uh, but then what doesn't kill me make, makes me want you more. I love that because it's like a plan. What doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Um, but in this case, it's like a, it kind of is double negative. Uh, like what doesn't kill me makes me feel more strongly for you which is actually killing me you know what i mean i think it's pretty clever it's new the shape of your body it's blue this feeling i've got blah 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 um and then it goes uh hang your head low in the glow of the vending machine i'm not dying we'll say that we'll just screw it up in these trying times we're not trying um i like trying times not trying good plan words hang your head low in the glow of the vending machine i'm not dying um one two things one I kind of wish the lyrics were hang your head low in the glow of the vending machine and I'm buying Um, because she says, you know, that I bought it earlier. And I think that I'm not dying is like what is a tribute to what doesn't kill me makes me want you more. Um, And she's saying, like, I'm not dying yet, but I still like I don't know. I kind of like the vending machine buying uh, correlation better. (laughs) I'm such an asshole. I'm not here to rewrite Taylor's lyrics. Let's just say she knows better than I do. But um. I guess I've never really gotten over um, the line and call it what you want. Trust him like a brother when it could have been trust him like no other. Just can't get past it. Don't know why you would want your lover to be your brother Um, or, you know, compare it to him. Uh, Anyway, I think that like some people were like, I think the vending machine is about like the hospital and, you know, being with her mom because hospitals represent kind of this. um, There's there's like always vending machines at hospitals and in waiting rooms. And when you get bad news, like that's they're just such a symbol kind of of like difficult times and what you're where you're eating when you're in the thick of it at a hospital. And while I don't think I think that's an interesting and astute observation, I don't think that the guy in Cruel Summer is the guy that was coming with her to the hospital. And I don't think they were having this volatile drunk in the back of the car time in like in 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 conjunction with like what was going on with Andrea. I just don't think it matches. Um. I I don't know what this line means, though. So who am I to say? But I think I think it could be two things like one, he's shiny toy with the price. You could think of a vending machine like a claw machine. And she's a she kind of like claw picked him like a toy and she bought it. Um, or I, I anytime I'm around vending machines, I mean, like kind of the back or the service, like the service hallways of buildings and in the back and uh, they often have vending machines. And I think Taylor spends a lot of time in back entrances and service hallways when she's hiding. So that was kind of like, you know, them chilling in like a back hallway with the vending machine. And like, I see a dude like putting his arm, like forearm on the vending machine, his head resting on the forearm. And like he, she can see his face in the glow of the vending machine. 
Um, and it's just like more of a sensory memory, like dancing around the kitchen and the refrigerator lights. Do I know that? No. Um, and cut the headlights. Summer's a knife. I'm always waiting for you just to cut to the bone. Devils roll the dice. Angels roll their eyes. If and if I bleed, you'll be the last to know. It's very like um, letting this guy do whatever the hell he wants, not wanting him to know that she's into him, trying to act like there's no rules, trying to act like she's cool, um, which is so funny because it, when I first heard the song, I was like, this kind of has the same um sensibility as a, as a getaway car is is like fleeting and irresponsible and the self-awareness in real time of acknowledging that uh irresponsibility and the the temporary nature but indulging nonetheless but they're actually very different because she's in somebody else's getaway car in this one she was steering in getaway car and she was kind of like had the control and put the money in the bag and stole the keys can we just talk about those i mean those lyrics i think are so underrated too like the ties were white. Wait, the ties were black. The lies were white. I mean, it's like so good. Best of times, worst of crimes. Tale of two cities. Like the whole thing. The, the getaway car is pretty brilliant. Um, and also, LOL, that she's so rich. She doesn't know that motels don't have bars. I mean, does anybody else, now that they hear that song, only like picture her at the Rosebud Motel all at Schitt's Creek? Schitt's Creek makes motel life seem so charming in the same way The Office made you know, in an office park look, you know, like it was Disneyland. It's just like a who's who of entertaining personalities and giggles. But really, we all know those aren't that's not the case in either. And God, I love Shit's Creek. David, I'm, I'm constantly working on my David. It's not perfect. Um. Anyway, so she says, yeah, same similar vibes of Getaway Car. I like Cruel Summer better. And they're different drivers in each song. Now, you know, my favorite part of the song is this absolutely flawless bridge that I relate to so hard. I'm drunk in the back of the car, and I cried like a baby coming home from the bar. Said I'm fine, but it wasn't true. I don't want to keep secrets just to keep you, and I snuck in through the garden gate every night that summer just to seal my fate, and I scream for whatever it's worth. Are you kidding? I just can't. I just this song is so good. Like it, I like I said in the first episode, like it's like where were you when like a man landed on the moon? Like where were you when JFK was shot? Like where were you the first time you heard Blank Space? I was in a in a cab on the way to the airport at six a.m. Uh, where were you the first time I, you heard Cruel Summer? Sitting here in front of my microphone having a, a conniption because I was so relieved that there was such a fantastic song that came out. No, I will never know why this isn't a single, but I, maybe it is because it's hard to sing. Maybe it is because I couldn't even go to the Grinning Like the Devil line without having to play the song for you because I'm I'm fearful of what that would do to my own larynx. I just don't know, guys. But anyways, I love, love, love that bridge because I relate to it in terms of like, you know, y- y- you play it cool. You're you're breezy. You relax. You 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 pretend like you're a person that can just kind of you know skim through life and not overthink things. Especially in the case where you're in a relationship with a person that's kind of not wanting to be in one, and they just like want to keep it casual and they want to keep it on the DL. It sounds like this person she's with wants to keep it a secret, and she doesn't want to keep secrets just to keep him. And she's this whole time been acting like it's cool, like no rules. That's what I tell him. Um, it's cool. That's what I tell him. No rules. Unbreakable heaven. Whatever. And breezy. And then like. You get drunk, you knock back a few. You decide to like make a bold move and say a few things that ultimately aren't received well. I do this twice a month. Um, and I bring up stuff that like I don't even really care about. But sometimes I'm just feeling like picking a fight and sometimes I'm just kind of being difficult. 
so well, none of my things are really quite this extreme because I'm not in a hidden romance. Simply the last time I got mad at Greg, it's because he dropped the remote on my hand, you know. Don't know if we're going to make it. <laughs> but I just like, I relate to like, just being like, I don't like, I don't want this. Like, I like, I love you. Like, I know you don't want to be like, you don't, you want to keep this casual. And like, I have to keep it a secret. And like, I know I've been playing along with this, like this whole time, like this is nothing and this is casual, but like, you know, and I like, you want this to be nothing so badly, but like, I love you. There it is. Like, I'm sorry. Like, what do you want from me? Like, you know what? I can just see somebody like exploding and being like, like, I've been trying so hard not to love you, but like I do. And like, you're blocking me. And like, I don't, and I don't know why you'd grin like a devil. I just keep picturing the pic- like purple emoji, like the purple emoji, like in a vending machine. I don't know. Guys, I love this song. It's perfect. I love the bridge. I listen to it constantly. I can't wait to hear it live. I don't, I honestly, this song is like a real question mark for me. I just, I can't place it. I don't think it sounds, you know, if we're going to paternity test, I don't think it like sounds like the beginning of Joe, her and Joe's relationship because she said um, just to seal her fate. And like, I don't get why a person that at that point who was non, not famous, like Joe, would need to like be like, keep it on the DL. It's a secret. The only thing I can think of is like, were they in a, was he in a different relationship? But also, did he even live in New York? He lived in London. This is in, you know, New York, Cornelia Street era. I feel very confused. And I just think it it's marked by, um, I don't know, much more volatility and uh turmoil and uncertainty and and uh secrecy for a reason that like maybe we don't understand obviously as i've talked about taylor's like love the garden gate thing there's pictures of of taylor going through carly's garden gate um i don't know i should have to sneak through it though if we have pictures but uh you know there's all the things and like who the hell knows i just think like this this character this grinning like a devil elusive character i just don't identify with their super nice boyfriend now that I just from my perception, it's like the a beautiful, famous, talented, like pop star is like into you. Are you really going to be like whatever? Like, no, you'd be like all over that. It's just hard for me to understand. Honestly, I need to move on from Cruel Summer, though. I'm sure I'll always go back to it. And if you're lucky, maybe I'll sing you my version at some point. Um, so the next song is Lover. And don't worry, I know we're like pretty far in, but um, I knew I had the, I knew I wanted to do like a more of an intro and I knew I had a lot to say about Cool Summer. And like, obviously there was like more pressing things like Kirsten's porridge recipe that came up, but what are you going to do? Uh, but the next song is Lover. And I've talked, if you want to know my feelings on Lover, I have like a whole, I think, Instagram highlight about it. Uh, it blew my mind when it came. I was like one in the morning. I was like, I, my, I was in Virginia. My husband was in Chicago. I like wanted to squeeze him. It made me like so nostalgic. It's that type of song that makes you miss the person you're sitting next to. It makes you nostalgic for the very present moment you're in, knowing that it's so good that you're also met with a certain sorrow that it at one point will be fleeting and you'll be back on looking at the moment that you're in, wishing you were you now. And it almost is like there can't be this fulfilling, holistic joy without this equally met uh, feeling of that like doo-wop sorrow uh, that you kind of long for an older time, even when that older time is yet to come. And I just think it's so so beautiful and so meaningful. And I love how it starts with the Bob Dylan, he kind of more syllables than the song warrants, but then it almost gets into like the doo-wop earth angel uh, vibe that is, is timeless. And she experiments with so many styles that transcends decade. And she said that when you, she wanted people to hear the song and not be able to really pinpoint what era it's from. And I love that. And I agree. I just like it to me, it could be a song that's like for, you know, an eighties, like Susie Q style movie, romantic prom dance. Or it could be for, you know, people, octogenarians, you know, the other the, in their actual 80s who are just have been lovers their whole life who look back on, you know, the simpler moments. I like 
I've made Greg dance with me. I, I dance with Tugboater on the kitchen almost daily. I, um, I, I love this song. It's so beautiful. It's so timeless. When she sang it at the VMAs and people freaked and did the, had their purple lights. I hope she realized like, this is the song, like what a big deal it is. And it's just beautiful. And it's the love song I needed from her. It's the thinking out loud of Taylor Swift. You know what I mean? Like, it's a song that like you can listen to it a lot and maybe you're you, you playing it will become less frequent, but you'll never appreciate it um, less when you do hear it. And uh, I think when I first heard it, I was kind of like I thought it was interesting that a lot of the lyrics used were, um, you know, we can leave the Christmas lights up till January. Well, first of all, that's sick. You know what? Seven days after Christmas. I do that, too. But I think the line's kind of supposed to be like, yeah, we can live unconventionally. We make the rules. It's whatever. Like. We live life on the effing edge. And by edge, I mean, we keep our fairy lights up on New Year's because they're delightful and cozy. And then we probably take them down Jan 1. But those are our rules. And this is our place. And exactly, it doesn't freaking matter. It's whatever you want. And, um, you know, some of the lyrics are like, uh, we can let our friends crash in the living room. At first, I was kind of like, these are pretty like specific, but also not super uh, flowery. Like it wasn't these, this flowery poetic prose that I was expecting. But as I got further into the song and as I listened to it more, I realized that actually far more romantic than any poetic flowery prose that you could uh, broad strokes apply to a relationship that actually could be indicative of anybody's romance. Far more romantic are your own inside jokes or your own activities or the own things that make you you because they're specific to your relationship. And that's all the more meaningful. So I like that she called out these specific things because I gather they must be things that are actually quite important to her. And obviously this bridge um, is mind blowing. And I still have goosebumps even thinking about all's well that ends well that to end up with you. Like, I mean, OK, my heart's been borrowed and yours has been blue. The, the, the juxtaposition that the, the um, old, new, borrowed blue, then all's well that ends well to end up with you. All's well and ends well as a common phrase. And she's using that. And then she's using ends well and end up to play on two different versions of end. And I'd also argue all's well and all too well have this like weird combination. And it's like this densely packed lyric of such, I mean, such intricate, understandable, such uh, brilliant wordplay that I will never get past it. My heart's been borrowed and yours has been blue. All's well that ends well to end up with you. And it's just like, I could, I, don't, I feel like I'm going to cry. It's like, it's kind of like how I felt about the line in You Are In Love when she's like, uh, why I spent my whole life trying to put it into words. Um, like you'll understand why they, uh, something, something fought the wars and why I've spent my whole life trying to put it into words. Um, but having in the back of my mind that she said that song was about Jack and Lena, I never like applied it to her. And I almost kind of like if, and when she finds somebody that she actually does end up with, I love the idea of densely packing this ending that, that weirdly summarizes the, 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 the turmoil and the comp, you know, the complex nature and the ups and downs and the drama of all of the lyrics of her past relationships. It kind of sums it up and ties it up with a bow. And it's just like at the end of the day, all's well that ends well to end up with you. And I'm just like, oh, my God, like all the stuff we go through, like all is well, that ends well. Like it's part of your story. It leads you to where you're supposed to be. And once you find that person, you forget you're ever single. You forget all the drama. You just realize that all that matters is it all got you to the place you're meant to be, which is with your lover. And I love the lyric. Can we always be this close? I feel like that's not a uh, adjective that people describe themselves as a lot. Like whenever you're asking about somebody's relationship, they're seldom like, oh, we're just like really close. But actually, I love that. You know, I like the idea of closeness. I always say 
I, I have trouble with adult friends because I just want to skip to the good part. I want to be like share a dressing room close. I don't want to be like text close or like me feel self-conscious and mull over all the weird things I said close afterward. Or like, should I not have ordered that third glass of wine close? Um, but I like the idea of closeness as it relates to your lover, because I do think that's like the separate, really special word about just being like so hyper connected and it's incredibly beautiful. And, um, I could talk about this forever. I just, I, I'm, I'm talking really fast because I know I've t- already talked about this song on Instagram and stuff, and you probably know my thoughts, but I just, you know, even though this song has been out for a while and we probably aren't, it's not as top of mind, I think it still deserves all the credit in the world as being a, a beautiful, modern yet timeless love song that captures um, the tangible moments in a relationship that are uh, as innocuous as they are meaningful and it captures a type of love that is that is relatable to everybody it's not too grand it's not too uh ostentatious you know what i mean anyway i i need to not i could go on about lover but i need to move forward um <laughs> really quick we're going so next we're gonna get into the man and like scooter and scott and um power through the the, the front nine and then we'll go to the back nine on the second episode but this front nine real fast is uh brought to you by a sponsor that listened for a second because I actually learned a lot throughout this process and it's something I pursued because I care about this. So it's kind of this hybrid of where I want to advertise the product, but also like tell you what they taught me in terms of education as it relates to what we consume. Cause I just think it's honestly fascinating. As you guys may know, Greg and Tugboat and I have steak Sunday every week. He's mastered the uh, cast iron skillet and oven steak. We're in the city. We don't have a grill. It's become a tradition. We watch 90 day fiance. It's an absolute delight. But it always is like a kind of a battle because we forget to get the steak. We go and then we're like comparing prices and nominal amounts and foregoing the healthier option in favor of the sale one. And it is just a whole thing. So when I learned about this company, ButcherBox, I was it really fulfilled the part of me that has watched one too many food documentaries and like wants to be a crusader for ethical conditions of animals and the environment and the things we consume, but doesn't always know how. And I'm obsessed with this company because they kind of make these decisions for you and allow you to have healthy, consistent options like at your door at all times. So ButcherBox is a subscription service that sends nine to 11 pounds of meat a month. And that's like 20, around 24 individual meals at less than $6 a piece. They're a meat distributed in the form of a subscription box that basically connects with local farms and co-ops and distributes um, high quality grass fed, 100% grass fed beef, heritage pork, organic free range chicken, wild Alaskan salmon, nitrate, sugar free bacon, all of their animals are humanely raised and free of antibiotics and hormones and are basically doing all of the things that I want to be doing to be more active for my health and be more of an advocate for what is more environmentally friendly and what is a more ethical living conditions for the animal. It's kind of alarming when you hear, like hear the stat that only 1% of the total beef consumed in the United States is 100% grass fed and knowing like the importance and the implications of that 99% on the environment. I'm just like, why am I not doing like making small incremental decisions that are minimal of a minimal impact in my day to day, but of maximum impact to, you know, the ethical treatment of the animal to the environment and to my own body for the love of God. It just is kind of like a no brainer to me to start doing this. And I've been meaning to, and I just kind of love in this format it's done for me. There's kind of a lot of smoke and mirrors too, with like the labeling and classification of meats. For example, grass fed can mean that uh, the cow is started on grass because all cows are started on grass fed, but many go into a feedlot at six months and are switched over to corn and soy to fatten them up. But they can still say grass fed on the label, which enrages me. So what you need to look for is grass finished or 100% grass fed in order you know, for, for it to mean that they will always have only ever eaten grass. And like, these are the interesting things I'm learning from them. Or like, it's important to see pasture raised because otherwise they're put into a lot and fed grass. 
which is also not great. Like to, to, you know, their living conditions and environment and the crowding is a piece too. And I'm just learning a lot. And I feel like this is like the smallest thing I could ever be doing, but also it's like, it's convenient and affordable. So like, why not? But you know, try it for yourself, which uh, this is actually one of the best deals I've ever had. Um, you can get two pounds of ground beef and two packs of bacon absolutely free, plus $20 off your first box. If you go to butcherbox.com slash be there in five or use promo code be there in five at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash be there in five or use promo code be there in five at checkout. It's also like try it for yourself and then you can gift it to somebody. I never know what to get like my dad, my brother, Greg, like, and I don't want to be like, oh, men like meat, but I, it's more like the, the, I want the men I love to be healthy. So give them meat that they'll eat anyway. You know what I mean? Because uh, it's, it's not like a thing for frills or to be like gifty or cheesy. It's honestly just people that want uh, everybody to have equal access to high quality because if you you know work with local farms and co-ops, you're able to get have access to a network of the right places. And it's just not always available to everybody at every you know type of grocery store and place they live. And I'm a big fan. So anyways, butcherbox.com slash be there in five. Try for free. Let me know what you think. And thanks for listening. I learned a lot. Did you? I don't know. I feel like I did. So when I first heard she was doing a song from the perspective of a man, I was like, I don't know how this is going to like, I don't really know. I don't know what the way this song was talked about before I heard it. I thought this was going to be a very difficult thing to pull off. The way she did it is brilliant. The song is actually crafted quite well and it's an important song. Is it my favorite song? No, but I'll tell you why. It's not because it's a bad song, it's because it's a concept song. And there like it's like there's times when I want to listen to, you know, songs in the essence of like Katy Perry's Roar, like you know, or like when I'm feeling sentimental towards somebody, I'm not like, Santiago, thank God. Um, you know what I mean? So like the man is like so great for a specific scenario when I'm like in a conference room, like trying to power pose, getting ready for like a situation there where like, I don't want to be discriminated against or like feeling really like angry or ragey toward like men in general, which happens a lot for me. Um, it's or it's kind of like similarly. OK, I, I don't sit around like listening, toe tapping to um, the best day or never grow up. Um, you know, why? Because those sentimental songs destroy me and I would sooner, you know, take a long walk off a short pier listening to butterfly kisses and just, I don't know, ending it because I, I, I that, that sounds better than having to experience the uh, sentimentality and sadness of, of time gone by and everyone getting older and losing my childhood and how much I love my parents. And like, those are thoughts that just crush my soul that I don't need to have all the time. Some days I can handle it. Most days, absolutely not. Christmas shoes, abs like, no. Um, soon you'll get better. I listen to one time and I hope that I get, you know, an acting gig at some point, you know, not not, not trying. But in the event somebody needs me, uh, I guess the good news is I um, have an ability to cry on command. I don't need to smell an onion. I simply need to think of holy orange bottles and I will die and do a puddle. Um, anyway, getting off track, uh, the man is great. I think I do. I think it's going to be a single. No, I don't. I think it's like falls a little short of a single. Though I could see like her getting a bunch of women like in a video, but I guess she already did that for bad blood. And I guess she already did that for you need to calm down. And that's kind of like been done. But I was thinking like it could be like a women's empowerment thing with like her and like, you know, U.S. women's national team, like all these great people. It's kind of like Adam Levine. Um, what he tried to do in Girls Like You, an Adam Levine song I thought was like pandering at its finest. It was like, because I'm so supportive of all these women because I know that it's cool to support girls right now. And here's my famous friend and here is Elton. And, you know, that, that, that that's how the song goes word for word. 
Uh, but anyway, I think I'm not a big Adam Levine fan. I think it's so interesting that this has a male co-writer. I think this song could have been like slam dunk pure, uh, if it had a fem- it had a female co-writer or co-writers or was just her. Um, I just think that's interesting. Uh, but I also, um, you know, the reason this song's particularly important right now to do a quick overview, uh, is because she made a statement last friday and it was like a, an exemplary of another um you know heinous abuse of power on scott borchetta's behalf as we all know if you don't know the background of this go listen to my episode in july that the title basically says it it's it i literally talked for two hours about why the sale of big machine to scooter like what it means why it's a problem why it's misunderstood and why i like stand with taylor wholeheartedly on it but basically, um, you know, we move on from the sale of Big Machine to Scooter that he was able to buy by backing of the Carlisle Group. Um, and I also explained that connection, too, because I think people on the Internet like really ran with like Carly Kloss's connection uh, to the Carlisle Group due to the, like a Kushner real estate deal. But actually, there was one deal done in isolation that the Carlisle Group backed and it was like over 10 years ago. And I explained that, too. And I just don't think people need to draw that conclusion because I it's uh, private equity it, like is behind everything for better, or for worse. Like Carlyle Group is just as embedded with companies like Duncan as it would be with, um, you know, Scooter. What's what Scooter Brown Projects or whatever his company name is like. There's so many companies that are backed. I think Golden Goose is like if, if we if we're going to start like going after companies based on what P.E. firms have holdings like we're screwed because I don't think people even realize how deep this goes. Um, but the Carlisle group definitely provided, put up the funding so he could be able to buy it for $300 million, big machine. So, um, Taylor wanted to buy the rights to her masters, different from publishing rights, masters of the original recordings, um, outright from, uh, Scott, the label big machine that she was with for 13 years. She was not given the opportunity. Instead, she was given a garbage business deal, an offer that for every album going forward, if she re-signs with big machine upon contract renegotiations, if she resigns with Big Machine and gives them one album, for each album she gives them, she'll get one going back. Up until this point, she had had six albums. This is over a decade of committing to this label. Why is he giving her this shit deal instead of just letting her buy her masters outright because she has the money to? Because he wants to sell the label. And Taylor Swift's intellectual property, her, her music, her masters, I guess not her IP, technically his IP, but her work is the val- is the majority of the valuation of Big Machine. If she takes, you know, she buys the masters, Scott's company loses value. If she if he can trick her or basically write a crap contract that kind of backs her into a corner and requires her to stay for 10 plus more years, it inflates the sale price of the label that she knew he was going to sell. What's alarming is one, she, while she was under Big Machines in in contract with them still if she had resigned, it could have been bought by Scooter and then she would essentially be managed by a man she hates, which is terrifying. But also, I kind of think that she thought that there was a good chance that UMG, that her new label, would buy Big Machine and she'd somehow still be able to have um, rights in some way or be able to acquire them in some new format of her contract because she was able to negotiate a pretty non-traditional contract with Universal relative to other people because she was able to get uh, more favorable uh, payment structures for contributors to tracks and she had I think she did something with streaming and how much artists get paid for streaming and she basically said like my conditions of coming to your label are you treat a lot of the artists a lot better than you currently are which is so so cool I need to breathe I, I'm like worried about this being long so I'm talking fast um 
Okay, so the reason I think she can't buy her master's outright is because he needs to inflate the price of his company. He wants to sell the company. She says, I'm not going to take that offer. That's terrible. She acknowledges that like it's a shitty business deal designed to back her into a corner. Um, so he, out of spite, because he she leaves his label and it kind of, th- I would argue, kind of threatens the, the um, projected value of the label going forward. So the value is in the master's going back. Yes. If they had the value in, in the chance of her albums for the next decade, the value would be much, much higher. Um, and I think that he was felt snubbed. He felt slighted. And like most garbage men do, um, when their ego is bruised, they take revenge. If, if a man turns out another man, it's like, whatever, bro, best, best of luck, best wishes. And this is a generalization. But if a man's ego feels bruised, he feels the need to take revenge at times. And this is something that definitely happens in the workplace. Definitely things that I've experienced and something that is a tale as old as time. And when she spoke out and said, it's like, it's not illegal for Scooter to buy BMG. It's not illegal for Scott to exercise the rights of the contract, to exercise the clauses that are in his favor that, you know, he has ownership of her master's. Uh, you know, contracts are unfavorable to artists. It is it is kind of what it is. But also, does it have to be? And also, can somebody exercise their power to make change for the better? Like, yeah, if we said it is what it is to everything for the, like all of history, where would we be? Like, not very far. Like, there are change makers and, and, and people that are catalysts for change. And I think Taylor Swift's done an incredible job of trying to be a pioneer. I think she's also at the stage in her career where she gives zero Fs and she's just going to speak out. And she's had she's been backed into a corner one too many times. Um I think that when she was given the crap business deal, even though she could afford her master's, she wasn't given the right to her own work. These greedy men wanted to own her work in order to inflate the the sale price of her company. Out of spite, it gets sold to a man that was at the helm of of a bullying snake campaign against her. In 2016, the takedown of of her reputation, which Father, Son, Holy Spirit doing that right now, uh, gave us a reputation, the album, which I love so much, but also I wouldn't wish that upon my worst enemy. Like, you know, whatever. Um, It was terrible for her mental health. She apparently Scott is very well aware of her issues with Scooter. I'd argue almost that her falling out with Carly Kloss is something to do with Scooter because when Carly started being managed by him is kind of when they seem to go separate ways friend wise um, or otherwise. Uh, but I think that people that didn't really understand the situation accused her of of whining, of overreacting. Yael, uh, Scooter's wife, was like, you're, you know, throwing a temper tantrum and said, like, I wish you believed in yourself the way you know, my husband believed in you. And it's just like, ew, gross, creepy. Like, I can't even believe women still think it's appropriate to talk to women like that. I can't believe people are just dismissing each other like that. I just, like, and I said this before and I'll say it again. You have the right to be disappointed if somebody fucks you over. Just because it's not illegal doesn't mean it's not a crime of character and doesn't mean it's not a betrayal and doesn't mean that after a 13-year business deal, you wouldn't expect some sort of loyalty, especially when you are solely responsible for somebody's success. And not to say he didn't have a hand in it, but it's literally her work that she doesn't have ownership of. And I know, like, again, like that's not really shouldn't be the point because that is an issue with so many record contracts. Look at the Prince's, you know, the decade long battle of artists formerly known as Prince. Um, his estate's like a mess because of all this, too. But I think that she just wanted to point out an abuse of power in terms of like there was a lot of people that could have bought the company. I, I'm sure her label tried to buy the company. I'm sure there were a ton of buyers and Scott has the right to choose, you know, get the best price and to pick the best buyer. But I think what happened is she knows very well that there were multiple bids that were probably comparable, if not more. And he actively chose the person she hates the most, knowing it would drive her absolutely insane. It was just like a bullshit betrayal power move. And then when he came out and released his statement being like, 
I, you know, I, I don't know if she has issues with Scooter. In fact, when Scooter invited her to perform at the uh, Manchester ba- benefit, she declined. And it was like, oh, my God, are you, like, what a dick using like a tragedy to as like a, a means to de- depict an image of her, like a person that doesn't care about like, uh, you know, helping the victims, families and the the community of a place with a horrendous terrorist attack. Like like that's that's the stuff like that is so low. It's so it's a bottom feeder nonsense that like does not need to be brought up. And that just shows the type of guy he is. And it every time Scooter or Scott responds, it proves her point that he is this like low and deceptive, like undercutting and deceptive. And like it goes for the jugular, like like just strikes back, like really in a really extreme manner that doesn't look him look good. And honestly makes me side more with Taylor. But I think like he's just an asshole. And um, so anyways, this kind of like settles down. I know I'm missing things. But then on Friday, she releases a statement that's like or Thursday. She's like, don't know what else to do. And um, it's basically like, I'm not allowed to. Okay, a she announces a documentary that uh, that that Netflix has been following her for a few years for documentary about her life. And like, I could pass out. That's all I've ever wanted. All I ever want is to hear her talk more, to hear her thoughts more, to hear her muse more about life and love and like. I love how she speaks and I love the way she thinks. And I always just want more of her as a person. And to let us into that, I think is going to be so incredible, not only for us as fans to get to know her, but maybe even to, for other people to understand her more, give her some grace, give her some room to evolve. Like she's not the person that, you know, is, you know, she doesn't embody the old tropes about her from like the 1989 era anymore. Like let's let her move on. Let's move on with her. And I think we all know that, but the other parts of America don't know that. And like a lot of people watch the rep tour on Netflix, they're like, Jesus, how did I miss this? And I think sometimes like, you know, people aren't going to go out of their way to find a reason to like you or go out of their way to buy your concert ticket. But if it's like there and they can stream it, it's kind of a great way to get, you know, your message out there. And like, I could just honestly, I am so excited for that. And I hope that it still comes out. And I wonder when it's coming out. Um, So regardless of if her old music's in it or not, I don't care. I could just like listen to her, like do a housewife style talking hat and a you know, a bold earring and a excessive smoky eye look and just like tell me things. I could watch that for hours and be very happy. Then the second piece is she's being honored by the AMAs as like the artist of the decade. I was going to do a medley of her songs. This would be like so cool and exciting. And I would love this. I love especially like, you know, some of her bigger songs that she'll play are not, aren't my favorites, but they're like the general public's favorites. So we hear a lot of um, shake it offs and, you know, uh, I knew you were trouble and the likes that are good. But like, I'm in it for, you know, like, I don't know, the, the way I loved you. I, I'm in it for the treacherous, the don't blame me, the king of my heart, um, the all too wells. I, I'm in it for the new romantics. I'm in it for the 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 holy grounds, the the state of graces. I'm, I'm in it for I don't care what anybody says. I still like love story. It's it's so one of my favorites ever. Um, but anyway. I, 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 you know, I like a lot of either like secondary tertiary singles or non-singles. Um, that wasn't comprehensive of my Taylor Swift fanship. That's just what came to mind. Um, so it, my point is in a medley, it'll be nice to hear like the American Idol length of songs. It's kind of like doing a power hour. Freaking love a power hour. I should make a power hour on like Spotify of one minute clips of songs. Power hours get you messed up. I'll tell you that much. That's like, uh, that's kind of a fun era when we couldn't afford drinks at the bar. So we would just like pour beers and shot glasses and like slam eight in an hour's period and then just like not drink the rest of the night. And then instead of like, you know, you just like have all your drinks in like one condensed period, which is not healthy. And I don't condone. But, you know, it's it's I guess what we did in college. And I was also quite depressed in college and can't imagine there's a correlation uh, anyway. So she's being prevented from using her songs in this AMA medley, her old music that um, anything before Lover, 
She's being blocked from using that. She's being blocked from having her songs in the Netflix documentary that we don't know when it's coming out. And she's she the there. So I guess uh, the contract terms are that this year she can't re-record her masters, but she can next year. They were blocking it and saying the only way you can have your old songs for these things are if you one don't re-record your masters next year and two stop talking about Scooter and Scott. Like what what man childs men children um, like it's just it's all it's that's the thing is like people have to ask for licenses all the time. People leave labels all the time and have their masters in different hands all the time because you know what happens when you own the master license. People have to license the the right to the music from you and you get paid. It's not like you're doing them a favor. They're just like saying, yeah, you can pay me because this is licensable music. And they weren't blocking her for a good business reason. They were blocking her as an abuse of power in order to punish her further. Like they punished, he punished her the first time selling the label to Scooter to punish her once again, just to like torture her um, for speaking out against them. Because since the beginning of time, women are, are like women who speak out and give their opinions and her talking about Scooter and Scott publicly. She had every right to do that because it was an important message to get across about a person who was seeking revenge, not for business reasons, but for personal, which is by definition an abuse of power. And when she did it the first time, I totally think it was warranted. And I think it was warranted the second time. The only thing I didn't love about the second time was her instructing people to like reach out to Scooter or Scott. I think we would have done it anyways. She has an army like we'll go to bat for her all the live long. Um, but in saying that, it's almost like a directive. And then people can, you know, take the bullying route like narrative. And then that's frustrating because it's not the point. It was to draw attention to something like, you know, for kind of kick and scream and be like, I, like, this is not OK. Um, and without telling people about it, you know what? Just being silent and like hanging your head and accepting it is probably what she's done for 13 years. But now she doesn't care. And um Anyways, I was kind of surprised more stars didn't speak out because she was asking like other artists to speak out. But I'd argue that, you know, a lot of artists are probably involved with like a subsidiary label of like a parent that is somehow related to Scooter Scott that um, like by contract aren't allowed to speak out about things like this that by their management, like would never be allowed to talk. I think that so many things control artists besides their own free will. Like I think that actually for the most part, they don't have any. And like I have talked about before, um, you know, all, all everything you do publicly like kind of has to be vetted. And I just don't think that everybody has that kind of freedom to be able to um, address situations like this without burning bridges. And not everybody has uh, Taylor Swift's level of success where they can almost afford to burn bridges. You know what I mean? I, I love that she's at like zero F's level of female power. And that's why this is so scary, is that the most powerful, one of the most powerful female artists can have her hands tied and not be able to do anything about it. And, and she has every resource, all the money, everything she could ever need. And and men still have power and men are still manipulating business deals in their favor. And they're still operated by greed and revenge and punishment and not by just rational standard decision making by people that have the right to speak up for themselves, to stand up for themselves and to make the best business decisions for themselves. Because if your masculinity wasn't so damn fragile and so damn ego driven, then you wouldn't feel the need to counteract every move by this powerful female by puffing your chest and showing that you can exercise more power, that you have control of the chess pieces. You would actually meet her, see eye to eye, and realize that this wasn't working. There's a good reason she didn't want this and move forward accordingly and respectfully like you likely would with a man. And I know I'm making generalizations, but I'm speaking about this. That What I gather from this situation specifically is just, it's so, it's just such an obvious case of like, I don't know, okay, I'm going to I'm just going to read what I wrote on Instagram. I wrote it on a plane. I thought a lot about it. 
um, because I was getting DMs of people being like, she's whining. And I'm like, oh, my God, shut up. Um, And I said. This AMA is in Netflix ordeal is only one of many times he's back turned her a corner and dangled his power over her so that if she doesn't agree to some bullshit business decision that is hardly business related and 100 percent out of spite and greed, she ultimately gets screwed over. And not only is she already caught in a lose-lose, when she stands up for herself, she's gaslit, being told she's overreacting, lying, throwing a temper tantrum, etc. If you are over her speaking out, not a Taylor Swift fan, or accusing her of whining over an unfavorable business deal, consider this. Manipulative tactics like gaslighting and accusations of overreacting or being too emotional have been used to discredit women since the beginning of time. It's important that she's not backing down, not only to fight for her work, but also as an example to her millions of young fans that will inevitably be exposed to similar abuses of power in the workplace. The fact that she's one of the most powerful female artists in the world and her hands are tied is a frightening reminder of how often decisions are made for a powerful man's personal gain and not in the business's best interest. It is also a very obvious example of how women are often punished for holding their ground and speaking out. Is it illegal for Scott to exercise the terms of the contract? No. Was selling her life's work to her worst enemy instead of, or instead of her illegal? No. Does she have the right to feel disappointed and betrayed that a shady deal was orchestrated to screw her over in perpetuity when the valuation of that same deal lies almost solely in an over a decade of her hard work? Absolutely. Regardless of where you stand, when a woman's hands are unfairly tied, we should empower her to scream. And I mean that wholeheartedly. I think of somebody literally being tied and literally being stuck. And we're telling her, mm, yeah, you probably, you deserve to be there. Keep your mouth shut. Like, fuck no, rip off that duct tape and make a fucking scene. Like, I mean, I'm making a scene. But uh, I just, you know, when I, I guess I think the reason I'm saying this as I talk about the man is, you know, I think men that speak out and men that are, are principled and like have a perspective and that make shrewd dis- business decisions or like they're complex. They'd be cool. They, you know, they're uh, get credit for all their good ideas and power moves. Um, like they wouldn't worry about what he was wearing if he was rude. Like all the things she's saying in the song are completely true. And beyond that, if I was a man, then I'd be the man, which is a really clever play of play on words. I think that like, you know, part of the inherent issue with um, masculinity and its fragility is that Uh, It exists in contrast to a woman. And like when people say, be a man, be more of a man, um, they're basically saying be less of a woman. And it's almost kind of reinforcing how the double standards are so wild and that you can do the exact same thing. But it it is just a fundamental insult. And it's the wrong way to be if you're a woman. But if you're a man in direct opposition, it's the better way to be because it makes you less of a woman. And that's why masculinity is so toxic in the first place, because it doesn't come from a place of equality. It comes from a place of um, active contrast and being more so you can be less of something else because something is viewed as being less than you. And that is being more feminine. And it's like it's 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 really a broader thing that like I think you could probably like write a thesis about. And there's obviously so much like so many fun aspects of this song. Flash in my dollars. Bitch, not a baller. The bridge is incredible. I love St. Gerpay Leo, all the things. Um, but I just think she very brilliantly was able to craft in a very uh, short period of time with very limited, um, you know, uh, like use of words almost. She was able to convey perfectly how double standards work and how what, uh, what you were admonished for as a female is what gets you revered as a man. And that th- therein lies the issue. Ooh, okay, I got to move on for that, that part. What's the next song? I think I'm going to skip. Oh, The Archer. You guys know the drill. I think he knows. 
I think I think he knows is pretty sexual. Um, you know, lyrical smile and to go eyes, hand on my thigh. We can follow the sparks all drive. So where are we going to go? I whisper in the dark. I love skipping down 16th Avenue. I like the falsetto. I think it's cute. It's upbeat. I when I first heard the song, I was like, oh, this is great. Like it was a, it was an, again, like song after song. I was like, oh, this is fun. This is great. Like they they all move. They're all I, I just yeah, I really like it. It's it's flirty and it's cute. And it reminds me of like Janelle Monet, like the way you make me feel. I love how there's lyrics that are like, um, he's got that. uh I mean, it's just like it's so colloquial and it's so girly and sweet. And I um, I don't know. I just think it's 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 cute. Uh, but what's funny is until very recently, I didn't actually realize that her first venture into semi-sexual song. Well, like, I, you know, I thought treacherous, you know, I'll do anything you say if you say it with your hands da, 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 was sexual. I thought like Wildest Dreams was one of the first times she was like, his hands are in my hair, his clothes are in my room. No one has to know what we do. Um, you know, and then obviously reputation was like sex on a stick. Uh, so it goes is like about like, I mean, I did a number on you, <laughs> but honestly, baby, who's counting? It's just scratches down your back now. I was just unbelievable. Um, dress, obviously, too. But so, so it goes like if you read between the lines. I mean, where are you like a necklace? Are you kidding? Um, I didn't really think about how sparks fly is actually a little bit sexual. And then I thought, wow, these lyrics I hear all the time that are kind of ubiquitous in my head that I kind of write off because they, they're so second nature to me. I don't analyze them anymore. Like for the age she was when she wrote Sparks Fly, the lyric, um, give me something that will haunt me when you're not around. Like, damn, give me something that'll haunt me when you're not around. I'm Samantha. It was, it's just like, geez, um, I really like it. And it's like very suggestive. And I don't know, I never thought about it. Anyway, I say that because when she says, and to go... I wait, lyrical smile and to go eyes, hand on my thigh. We can follow the sparks. I'll drive. I feel like the sparks are like, you know, you're about to get it on. Very exciting. I love the coyness and the confidence of like, he's so obsessed with me. And boy, I understand. Boy, I understand. So cute. Um, I love it. So it's like flirty and upbeat, but it's also like super confident. It's also pretty sexual. You know, want to see what's under that attitude. She's like loving looking at his hands around a cold glass. And I've got to say, I do like I think man hands are like an attractive, underrated feature. You know, when they're like veiny and like strong, um, I'm into it so I can relate. <laughs> OK, Miss Americana and the Heartbreak Prince. It took, I, it took me a while to figure this out. It, it's not my favorite song on the album. I like it's kind of like even tone, Lana Del Rey. It's smooth. It's buttery. Like, I like the song. I don't listen to it that often. Um, I think that for a while, who the Heartbreak Prince was was confusing to me. And I think I was thinking that was the Donald Trump connection. But what she explained via Spotify is that the song is about disillusionment with our crazy world of politics and inequality set in a metaphorical high school. I wanted it to be about finding one person who really sees you and cares about you through all the noise. So it's a partial love song, a part political parable. And, um, you know, you know, I adore you. I'm crazier for you than I was at 16. She's referring to America, the country, um, talking about uh, her more recent interest and involvement in politics. Like, I I think like in the not then. I was at 16, could be like 16 years old, but I was kind of thinking 2016, which was in her last 4th of July party. And like, she hasn't had one since. And she said like her level of, of patriotism has kind of like obvious, like not faded, but I don't know. She kind of expressed that like she, she has felt differently since then. And I think she's kind of saying like, I'm still crazy for you. And I still want, want what's best for you. Um, but American glory faded before me. Now I'm feeling hopeless. I saw the scoreboard and ran for my life. The outcome of the 2016 election I think she was sitting there in silence and she was in the middle of still like a really crazy time where she was in a lot of 
heat and really trying to publicly hide out. And I also don't think in her last record contract, she could technically even talk about politics. So I think she saw the scoreboard, meaning the outcome of the election. She couldn't say anything and it was fading before her. And um, so they paint the town blue. I think blue kind of color Democratic Party. Um, Her team is losing, battered and bruising. I see the high fives uh, between all the bad guys. Team, I assume, meaning is her political party, the Democratic Party. High fives between all the bad guys is how she perceives what's going on in an office. Um, I'm feeling helpless. The damsels are depressed. Boys will be boys. Then where are the wise men? Yes. Um, and now the storm is coming, looking ahead to 2020 and like these, you know, the four years um, that they're going to endure the storm. And then kind of speaking to her lover, like, I'll never let you go because I know that this is a fight that we're going to win. And it's kind of like, I'll have you through it all. It's a fight we're eventually going to win. We're going to continue to fight between our beliefs and values. Cheerleaders behind her. Like, I, I think that, you know, there just like is a broader metaphor of like life is like high school. And there's the same, you know, journey of, of discovery. Uh, there's a lot of, um, you know, mixed emotions. And the system is very, um, it, it's very like clicky and it's not perfect. And it's run by very flawed, immature people. And um, you do the best you can to fit in the best you can, but you can't ultimately kind of control the outcomes. And I think like high school and like the this sense of like Americana of the United States high school, like the Friday Night Lights style almost is this um, representation of the American dream. But when she makes it into this like creepy dystopia, uh, it, it's like, I don't know, it, it, it kind of changes the tone of it. And I, I'm not even explaining well because it is confusing because it's layered and because she's way more smart than I am. Um but I think like she I don't know, I kind of highlighted the lyrics that I think are interesting. Um, I think like rolling fake dice is kind of like, uh, you know, the the fake news of it all. I think that um, no cameras. What is it? No cameras. Catch my muffled cries or no cameras. Catch my pageant smile like she she was hiding. She was in silence like nobody saw her crying. Nobody saw her quiet. She kept a stoic face in public. Um she and then it's like counted the days to see you there um at first i was like oh is this about like counting the days till there's like a female president like a hillary thing but actually apparently it's um about uh you know her finding the like i I don't know if it's joe or whoever um her having the one person who like understands her who's going to fight with her who's going to see her through it all and like they are able to do their own thing and even though they hear whispers in the hallways of she's a bad bad girl and they're kind of victims of this really unfair high school dystopian dystopia system. She has one person that, um, you know, it's kind of like thick as thieves, us against the world type of thing. Honestly, I know this is a garbage explanation. Let me read you an excerpt from an interesting article I read that said, one reason why Miss Americana is so effective and may affect Swift's audience so much is because of how deeply sad it is beneath its shiny tent surface. And as any fan of Red knows, disappointment is something Swift does really well. Most protest music is ineffective on a mass scale because the anger feels like a lifetime condition, not something that's been arrived at as the culmination of a long character arc. For better or for worse, Rage Against the Machine didn't sound like they just discovered rageaholism yesterday. Swift, for her part, might be standing in for tens of millions of millennials who looked at the American machine and figured they could get away with not knowing or caring how the sausage was made. Some of her fans might have gotten there ahead of her and a whole lot of others will be prompted to think hard about what they think of the state of the union by her lyrics. And if you think a mere album track can't do that, you really need to meet a Swifty. Um, and I think that, yeah, I, I just, I don't know. I think that what she's doing is really interesting and it's really creative and um, it really does make you think. And while I feel like this metaphor, I've 
not really mastered fully. I also haven't spent as much time with the song, but I think that she's essentially trying to communicate uh, the flawed system of of how the American government is running, how you can be a participant in a high school type scenario that is inherently flawed. Um, and you kind of just like are there like living. You're just part of it. You're just like it's four years. You're trying to like go into it, get out of it. You're kind of blind to it. Then like the storm is coming, the scoreboard, you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. And you like run for your life. You The thorns tear up your prime dress. Like your idea of Americana of high school is destroyed. There, these things happen and there's nothing you can really do about it. And it's just like it, it, you're kind of become a victim of circumstances beyond your control that you didn't take enough action in advance to uh, prevent. And you're kind of um, you're stuck under this veil of what is America? What is Americana? What we we just think that we are granted this kind of um, utopia of America and of an American dream by default. But what happens when the system breaks down and what happens when you feel like everybody around you doesn't understand how you're feeling and what happens when you don't have a voice and you can't scream out and the cameras can't catch you crying and you have to be stoic in public, but you care so much and you have so much power, but you can do so little. It's like you, you know, run for your life and you stick to the person who loves you, who understands you, who agrees with you, and you just weather the storm out together and you kind of watch it all happen around you. It's not like really an empowering song about like what you can do, but it's kind of like, I know we're going to fight and I know we're going to win, um, blah, blah, blah. That's kind of what I take from it. Don't know if that's right, but there you go. Sorry. I'm like, am I talking too fast? I don't know what to do at this point. <laughs> um, I want to get to other stuff though. Okay. Paper rings. I'm actually doing pretty good because I'm going to focus on I'll go over paper rings. Um, I'll go over Cornelia Street, Death by a Thousand Cuts, two of my favorite songs. I'll kind of breeze through London Boy, talk a little bit about False God, but I don't really know anything you don't know. And um, other than that, oh, no, my Wi-Fi is not working. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll see where we net out again. I'm not I don't want to like race through things you care about, but I also want to be mindful of your time. OK, paper rings. I love paper rings, but I also love like girl punk music. I love that she even described like this being a nod to that era, like Avril Lavigne style. In my head, I I like to draw, you know, parallels to the power duo that is maybe long gone in the music biz, but not forgotten by my standards, which is tattoo, T period, A period, T period, U period. Uh, the, you know, lesbian power duo of all the things she said fame and also they're not going to get us. I don't know if I'd describe them the same as like Avril Lavigne, but. I don't know. I feel like they're kind of angry and fierce and fall into this era of Ashley Simpson, Pete Wentz side bangs. And um, also Ashley Simpson wrote her entire album, um, Pieces of Me. And that album is so good. It was all written primarily by her and Cara Diaguardi. And um, like Jessica Simpson, who has a better voice and like didn't lip sync on SNL, but like now has issues like hyperventilating when she sings. So her voice isn't as good. So now she just makes that F you, you know, uh, unsold residual inventory uh, uh round toe platform pumps marshall's money and um ash but ashley simpson like when you look at this again i think i said earlier now i've become really obsessed with looking at who writes songs because um like when you look at certain albums there's like the simplest of songs and there's 10 freaking co-writers and it's like it's wild and then like taylor wrote lover by herself and it's um you know, like this one of the songs of the year. Uh, and I think it'll be nominated for a Grammy several times over. And anyway, I just wanted to give Ashley Simpson a quick nod for writing her songs. When you look at Jessica Simpson's albums, like, um, you know, Sweet Kisses or Sweetest Sin or whatever, like she has a, a several albums. She did not write a single one of those songs. She, her, she doesn't even have writing credits. So few artists do. And, and we should um, be, you know, giving an R of A to... The, the women that uh, genuinely have such a hand in their work. I think that the music business is like 
you know, I think some of those, the, the, the formatting, the structure of these agreements is almost in designed for artists that are kind of puppets. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody, but like there's, there's female artists who don't write their music. They've, they're given hits, they sing them, they go on stage, they, you know, puppet around and they're told everything to do and say, and they just really don't put a ton of like genuine sincerity into it, but they have mega hits and they're whatever. Like those are the people that I think these contracts are designed for because uh, the intellectual property is largely not theirs, but they are the ones performing it. Anyway, moving on. Uh, Paper Rings. Okay. Yes. This song reminds me like of this particular era and it reminds me of a song kind of like doesn't sound, I don't know why, but like um, there's this song that's used in three, three fine, fine films. I, I talked about, you know, how, how Joe Alwyn loves uh, films and goes to the cinema and refers to acting as his craft. Well, I, Catherine Kennedy, too, have, a, have, have outstanding taste as it relates to, to art in the form of cinema. And um, three of these uh, masterpieces, if you will, that use this song called One Girl Revolution by a, an artist named Super Chick. Um, the three films are Legally Blonde, Cadet Kelly, and Holiday in the Sun, Mary-Kate and Ashley's Atlantis Adventure. And um, this is that is the essence of Paper Rings to me. And I don't know why, but I just feel like it's a it's a movie montage uh, song. that's like upbeat and fun and silly and happy and like isn't going to be a single because it's probably too uh, a little too youthful. Like for you know what I mean? Like I I feel like it's a great album song that I actually listen to quite a lot and I really love. And I think I'll I'll love for a long time. And I was I don't know, it kind of like reminds you of like Can't Hurry Love. Uh, you know, by the Dixie Chicks. That was a remake of the one by Phil Collins. That was a remake of the one by um, Diana Ross and the Supremes. <laughs> a lot of people covered Can't Hurry Love. Um, but then it's also, I, I don't know, I could compare it to a million songs for the rest of time. Um, but like, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm like 32 now. I don't need to be like flailing my arms and like bouncing around. But like, I took an, um, these vitamins that I found in my filing cabinet from when I was on the keto diet. And I don't think I, re- I didn't really ever take them, but I thought I, I like read on some Reddit thread probably that like I needed something like some supplement and um, they're probably expired. And I took them and then I found myself like filled with energy. I look at them. I realize they have a large amount of caffeine in them. And I am essentially a uh, Jesse Spanoing around my house. And I listened to paper rings four times and tugboat and I danced to it. And then I was fine. I got it all out. It was kind of hilarious. It was like when a, it was like a witching hour when a toddler has to get out all their energy before bed. Um, it was uh, a really nice time my dog and I had that I did not need to tell you about. Uh, good cardio sesh. Uh, but anyway, I, yeah, I think that, um, you know, I just haven't heard a song, heard do a song that's just like this unequivocally upbeat and cute and happy in a while. It was a nice departure. It's very, it's just pop rock. It's like pump pop rock you know, mid aughts, it's, it's a very, it's a, it's a departure from the rest of lover, uh, but a welcome departure. And it doesn't, for some reason, sound sonically incohesive. It sounds like it belongs on lover. And I just, I really love it. And the only thing I don't love, well, two things, one, the term baby boy, I, 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 I wanted to take a test, right? I tried to say, say it to my husband, didn't go over well. Um, he's like, are you talking to the dog? It, like who, why, huh? And like, you know, when you're trying to like pull off something smooth and then they ask one too many questions and then like the slickest things like shouldn't need to be explained. And then they just like want to drop it. Um, also that's not my favorite Beyonce song. Though I know a lot of people love baby boy. Uh, secondly, the thing that I struggle with is, you know, I like shiny things, but I'd marry you with paper rings. Is the sentiment there? Yeah, absolutely. I don't need jewelry. I don't need material things. All I need is your love. And that time we painted your brother's wall. 
yes, to a degree, yes. But also, th- these are things a, a rich person says. Um, like, I wouldn't need shiny things either if I could buy them for myself. So I think it's more like, I like shiny things, but I marry you with a ring that's proportionate to your income. To gauge how serious you are about this. You know what I mean? I think it's important, you know, there's a gesture being done uh, before somebody marries you. It's like, it doesn't matter what it costs, but I think it, I like the idea of making a conscious decision and saving up for something and providing a symbol that is a quite literally an investment for you. The kind of, I don't know, is, is a barometer for uh, somebody being serious. And and the, that's the, that's why I say proportionate, because um, it doesn't matter the amount, doesn't matter how nice it is. It's more so in the gesture proportionate to like what you can afford and what works for your life. And doesn't mean it's unromantic if it's not a ring, but like, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like a thing a rich person says, like, I really did appreciate getting a ring. It was, it was nice. And I'd be lying if I said otherwise, even though I wish I was a better person who didn't care. I've written down that people, was it people in the Facebook group were kept comparing this to stay, 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 like being like this era's stay, stay, stay. I'd argue it's more like a holy ground, like it's like it's fast, um, but holy ground's a little like lower key. Um, so when looking at paper rings, the moon is high, like the, your friends were the night that we first met, LOL. It must be his, uh, you know, in order to tolerate stories from uni, I'd imagine you'd have to uh, participate in some sort of mind altering substance. Uh, went home and tried to stalk you on the internet. Now I've read all of the books beside your bed. This is kind of funny, like stay, 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 like very specific inside joke storytelling, it sounds like, because if they were generic lyrics, I don't know why you'd pick these specific things. Um, The wine is cold like the shoulder that I gave you in the street, cat and mouse for a month or two or three. Now I wake up in the night and watch you breathe. Cat and mouse, mouse for a month or two or three. And like when we went from friends to this, then I'm like, wait, well, what, like, then, it, yeah, that kind of feeds into the narrative like, OK, well, maybe that summer, like when she was uh, moving from Calvin to Tom, when she was like covering up the media storm. Never forget if anybody ever questions me of her ability to to spin the media in her favor through deliberate tactics that are somewhat pseudo events that uh, don't really need to take place, but are very much planted to solicit a reaction from the public in protection of her image. Uh, June 16th, 2016, Kim Kardashian releases an article being like, my husband called Taylor Swift and told her about the song and she approved it. And we have all these Rick Rubin was in the room. We have video footage of it. Like, it's so frustrating. What rapper calls somebody to ask them per, for permission? He calls me that bitch all the time. Who cares? This is like several months following Taylor Swift's Grammy speech of being like, if somebody tries to take credit for your fame, blah, blah, blah. Um, they say she approved it. That's bullshit. Her camp says she never heard the song. You can't approve a song you, you've never heard. Also, he wanted her to release it on her Twitter, and that's primarily why he called her. And also, um, the what's it called? Uh, she never approved him calling her that bitch, and not like Lizzo's that bitch. They're like weirdly two different things, even though they're the same thing. And um, anyway, on that day, uh, in that article, that GQ article, June sixteenth, twenty sixteen, there was a quote from Taylor's spokesperson in the article, meaning. Taylor's camp was contacted for comment, knowing that Kim was going to drop a bomb in this interview. What did Taylor Swift do on June 16th, 2016? She and Tom Hiddleston go kiss on the rocks in Rhode Island like Land's End dad wearing, you know, plaid and sweaters and schoolboy shoes, uh, sending the Internet into a frenzy because they were spotted dancing during the Bleach Ella era at the Met Gala when she was allegedly still with Calvin, though I'd argue they were on the outs. She needed to leave him. She needed a reason. And um, I still think Tom was kind of her getaway car, but me trying to incorporate the cruel summer and the Cornelia Street of it all into this summer too is so confusing. They allegedly didn't break up until 
September, but then it's like, okay, she met Joe at that Met Gala. He did have a buzz cut. I think that line was thrown into dress to throw us off of our scent because it was so clearly about a best friend and not Joe because they were not best friends at that time. And um, I feel like uh, I don't like it's just, I guess, hard for me to understand that there would be this like chemical on and off cat and mouse reaction or interaction between her and Joe the months of the summer when he was like literally not famous. I don't even know how he was at the Met Gala. I, he had worked on projects with some of her friends, I guess, and they would have met. But like, would she have been that taken with him? Like he had a buzz cut kind of like, you know, all the boys get uh, uh, during baseball season in high school when they have those like, you know, nice uh, early aughts flippy bangs that are kind of like an outgrown uh, mature uh, bowl cut, but uh, a little bit more textured as your hair gets when you go through puberty. And guys can have to like, you know, whiplash flip their head in order to get their hair out of their eyes. Um, and they it kind of has that like, you know, crest of a wave of like of hair that smooths it out the bottom. You know what I mean? They all have that like nice hair in high school, but then they like try out for the baseball team and the coach makes them shave their head and then they're unattractive till they come back uh, to school in the fall from the summer. And I just think a buzz cut is like truly the the, it's it's like infantile. It's like, it's just not attractive. And I think that that, when I look at pictures of him from that Met ball, it throws me off. Um, but again, I'm a shallow monster who needs shiny things and good haircuts, uh, preferably side parts. And um, maybe I just am misunderstanding this whole thing because I am a hypocrite who argues we know nothing about her yet. I'm like trying to add up these timelines. Like I know everything about her. And of course they're not going to make sense because we don't know everything anyway. Um, uh, I wonder what books are beside his bed, by the way. Also, the reason I brought up that story about Kim's GQ article is like those two events happening in the same day. Theoretically, she would never want if, if the Tom thing was actually happening right after that breakup. The last thing she wanted at that time was to have the boy crazy uh, serial dater narrative. Um, she was very aware of like, you know, her like she said, being a lightning rod for slut shaming. And um, I it's like so obvious that she was creating a diversion and it was so obvious that her camp knew that that was happening. And they were like, what's the one um, like thing the public's interested in that we can roll with? And like, what did everybody do that day? Obsessed about Taylor and Tom, uh, Taylor and Thor, and like weren't really paying attention to Kim's article. It kind of got squashed. And like, good for Taylor, ballsy move, power move, sitting at that conference room and taking control. And this is what I mean when I was so proud of her and Billboard for being like, I'm tired of having to maintain this like, oh, shucks attitude. Like, we're still doing well. That's great. Like, there's almost this sense of um, like faux humility, like as women, we kind of like feel the need to manufacture, to appear uh, gracious, to not be cocky, to, um, you know, kind of not pretend like the things that happen to us just happen to us. When really uh, she is incredibly strategic in a good way, incredibly calculated in a good way because she understands risk. She understands how to mitigate risk and she identifies situations where the public's going to run with a narrative anyway. And if it's going to happen, she might as well spin it in her favor. She plays chess, not checkers. And she, her saying, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not sitting in those conference rooms every week figuring out how to market my albums. I'm not going to pretend anymore. Like there isn't a very separate side of me that markets my albums and it's different from the side that I write music from but all the same I am the one masterminding the marketing existence of my um career and like I just think that was so incredibly telling and that's what I've always wanted her to admit and that's what I've always been saying is like you have to acknowledge that so much of the stuff she's doing is insincere but it's not wrong and it's not malicious it's just how public relations works it just it's how image management works and and what she said in that article is it's very hard it's easier for a woman to attain power but really difficult to maintain it and maintaining it um and maintaining the the favor of the public is a 
is a, a, a it's a long game and it's a strategic game and it's one you very carefully have to map to kind of balance staying in the mouth of the public and being inter like people having people interested in you maintaining buzz while also being a person that's not oversaturating in that call to Kanye West. If you listen to the recordings, I thought it was so interesting that she says, I'm this close to overexposure. She's very mindful of her level of exposure uh, of, of, you know, where to go for reach, where to go for frequency. And at what point does frequency yield a level of wear out where what you're doing isn't effective any, anymore because you're overexposed and people are tired of hearing from you. And like, she's a brilliant publicist. She's a brilliant business mind. And she isn't who she is because it's happenstance. She is who she is because she's very carefully pulled specific le levers to get us in her favor, to become interested in her relationships, to coincide albums and uh, paparazzi step outs and interesting events with things she needed to promote or convert or tickets she needed to sell. And that is exactly what everybody else does. And that, but because she's so nice and because she's so good to her fans and because she's a good person, we just assume like she's somehow above doing any of that, but like, she's not, it's just how the business works and it's fine. I just have had so many Swifties come after me over the years for even pointing out like her and Joe will step out when there's, um, you know, he's promoting a trailer or a movie or like they, they will so sparsely step out that it was borderline confusing and unfeeling to me. Um, cause it always seemed to coincide with his stuff. And I, I know I talked about this earlier, but, um, now I kind of like, I don't know, I, I see it a little differently now. And also I think that the, I don't know. The whole point was to be like, it's just fine. She's not always, you know, fending off paparazzi. She's not always like begging for privacy. It's not always invasive. You shouldn't torch Swifties on Twitter for showing paparazzi pictures. Like they can hide when they need to. And when you see like, I don't know, it's, it's just, it's definitely very interesting. And, um, I, I was excited that she said that in the Rolling Stone article. I'm proud of her for being like, I'm tired of pretending like I don't do this. And I think that we're not talking about it enough because I think it's like a really interesting admission when you think about so much of the stuff she's done. And I use that one Rhode Island Kim K GQ article example because it was so planned. It is so obvious that the only thing she could do to detract from a story that big was to do something uncharacteristically bigger that she'd been kind of trying to shy away from. And uh, then they continued to kind of gallivant. I don't know the legitimacy of that relationship or whatever. Tom has spoken highly of her, but I just think that's the best example of something like no one can deny is not a coincidence. And that was a very effective diversion that her camp um, created away from a story that was potentially very damaging to her image. Um, but they had also sent a, you know, a letter saying, don't play the footage of that video. Uh, and they did anyway a month later and S hit the F. But anyway, back to paper rings. We'll wrap up this one in a sec to get to Cornelia Street. This one, I this bridge is like not as bridge city for me as some of the others. I want to drive away with you. I want your complications, too. I want your dreary Mondays. Wrap your arms around me, baby boy. Again, because of the baby boy. Um, anyways, that's pretty much it. Uh, it's a beat. It's cute. I love it. I look forward to the next time I, um, you know, get so excited and take caffeine pills and dance around my apartment to it. And I will love to hear this song on tour and I will forever walk through the streets uh when i'm in a good mood just enjoying the upbeat happy and love nature that captures the uh youthfulness and novelty and joy of a strong love that can equally be sung by a person in a more mature relationship because a great relationship makes you feel that type of way many many times over just like it did when you first started okay cornelia street i like this song gives me all the all the feelings like lover in a different way though and when I first heard it, I thought um, it was about a, it was like in past tense. 
but it's hypothetical. Like she, you know, if like this relationship means so much to her, she'll never be able to walk Cornelia Street because it's so sensory again, because it'll make her too sad thinking about the relationship. Let's like listen to it for one second. One of my favorite parts is when it drops because like, hold on. Which is unusual because typically the streetlights don't know. So it starts really sad. It's that same thing with lover. You miss the person you're sitting next to. You, you're like, it's a hypothetical situation. And when I first recorded this, I thought it was about a breakup. I'm still not convinced it's not about one, um, but or not about a past relationship. But like, I don't know. I'm so torn, guys, because I think like the Cornelius Street place was like so long ago, and that like I think I'm so thrown off by the city screams your name. Without that line, I honestly wouldn't really overthink this song. And honestly, don't fight me. I, I'm like, I I don't know. I, 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 You guys know I love the Kaler theories. I am now more into the Joe theories. I'm into the idea of like, maybe this was volatile and maybe it is more dynamic than I think. I think I just think of him as such like a quiet, nice guy that like she wouldn't have this volatile relationship with him. Like Cruel Summer, just bad, bad boy, shiny toy. And I see Cruel Summer as being like a side A and this being like a side B and um of a similar relationship that have something to do with the city. And like, uh, it's kind of like in false God, she's like, I'm New York city. You're the West village. It's just like, I'm, but then she also says the ocean between us. And I'm like, or the ocean separating us. I know. And then she said, I'll get to false God later. Remember how I die for you. I'm like, hello. That's a lot. Um, but anyway, it doesn't matter who this is about. I know people, this is one people fight about a lot. I don't really care. It's a really good song. I think it, kind of blends a lot of themes and timelines. It kind of hints and points in different directions. Um, I wish that the clues in the song pointed in an arrowhead leading us home to a conclusion, but unfortunately it doesn't. So all we have left to do is just get along and enjoy it. But in a strange way, this song encapsulates autumn and fall the same way all too well does and has the same storytelling capability and has the same way to make you feel nostalgic, happy, sad, grateful, frustrated, uh, like you're losing something that you actually technically have. And like, I don't know how to feel when I listen to this song. It's, it confuses me, but it, it pumps me up. It brings me down. And I just like, it's all over the place, but it's a beautiful song. It's a dynamic song. It's another song I think she wrote herself. And it uses that same imagery, that same um, onomatopoeia, like almost style of a figurative speech where she's explaining things like the the creaks in the floors, the barefoot in the kitchen. Like I, 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 I just like the way the descriptive language she uses in this song. It's so beautiful, and I don't know who it's about, and I don't want to overfocus on it because no one's going to agree. But I do think that like she was in the Cornelia Street during a renovation during a really specific time um, that started in, you know, 2016. And like, we've seen Cara Delevingne and Carly Claus and like all these people pictured outside of it. It was a carriage house. My best friend in New York, when I lived there, lived next to the carriage house, um, above Cornelia street cafe. And I spent so much time there a couple, you know, several years before her, but, um, I know the street. Well, it's like both a, an adorable pocket of a New York city street that like encapsulates everything that's charming as hell about the city right off of bleaker. I'd argue now it's like a smidge touristy. I mean, the Taylor Swift thing's going to make it more intense, but um, uh, it's it's just it's like it's just a quintessential New York street that especially in the fall 
which for some reason I'm associating the song with the fall, uh, would be so sensory and so meaningful. And I, ca- I can't walk Cornelia Street again without thinking of my friend having dinner parties, hosting Rosh Hashanah, having crushes on boys in New York that would come to the uh, dinner parties and like, try. I don't know, like, I just think of, there's just, we, we borrowed chairs from the Cornelia Street Cafe because too many people came when we didn't you know, prepare for enough uh, of all of the like coworkers and mutual friends we had. And it was like my first time attending a Jewish holiday. And that was like really special to share with a new friend. And it was like my first like adult, like large extended friend group sharing traditions, laughing over wine, doing all the things I desperately wanted to be doing in college when everybody was like blacking out at bars. And um, I just wanted to have long conversations with red wine running through my veins on an adorable city street where I could walk home to the soundtrack of my headphones and just like be empowered by my new life that everybody else seemed to feel at tailgates and football games. But this New York was my football game. And like, I, it's like, I relate to the, how sent like every memory that I have of that, like pivotal fall, because it was like the first time I was in a positive relationship with myself. Um, that, and that's why New York is special to me. Like, I, I feel like I didn't even realize how much, like how low I was and how much self-loathing I had dealt with until I like re- really kind of had a clean slate and reinvented myself in New York. And, um, I think that's why I also love so much about Taylor Swift's like 1989 New York. Like you can be who you want to be. Like it was kind of a new start for her. And it definitely was for me. And like, I just love songs that are sensory like this and in the same vein as all too well in terms of like the, you know, the individually, the things aren't that important or meaningful. The creaks in the floor, barefoot in the kitchen, jacket around my shoulder is shoulders is yours. You know, card sharks, playing games, thought she was being led on again, confusion. Um, so maybe it is a more volatile relationship from that's more akin to Cruel Summer, though I feel like the character in Cruel Summer is much crueler than this person. But, all, you know, relationships aren't perfect. Um, but packed her bags, left Cornelia Street before uh, they even knew she was gone. Then they called, showed their hands, you know, card sharks, showed their hand, turned around before I hit the tunnel, sat on the roof, you and I. Is that the same roof as, you know, King of My Heart? On the roof with the school girl crush, drinking beer out of plastic cups, see fancy me, not fancy stuff, baby, all at once, this is enough. That was a big moment for me to hear live as well. Um, so I don't know. I just like so many things like uh, about the song are those little details that make all too well so great that also make this so great that kind of associate um, with this apartment, the apartment, this character, this freaking huge as an indoor pool um, with these memories. And it's like uh, you tie um, locations so closely with the experience you had. Like I always say when somebody's like, oh, yeah, uh, San Francisco sucks. It's like, well, you probably had a bad time there. Like, a lot of people love it. No city is, you know, fundamentally good or bad. Your experience is fundamentally good or bad. And um, a lot of why I love Chicago is because actually when I lived in San Francisco and did not like it, um, I would just fly back to Chicago. It was when I first started dating Greg, and we were, like, kind of together. We're kind of not because I didn't know if I um, – I didn't have a job yet because we – anyways, nobody cares. Um I was in a job that like was a rotational program where I had to uh, like pick a job within the company that could have literally been anywhere in the country. So it's hard to like s- establish and s- be in this relationship where you're like committing when I'm like, I don't know if uh, next month and two months, three months, I'm, I could live like, you know, in Florida and like Tampa or, you know, in San Francisco, New York, you're in Chicago. He had just moved there. We spent the summer together. I loved it. It was like magical. 
And then um, in San Francisco, I was just like in a, the, the cold, damp microclimate of despair and like missed him so much and felt like I had walked away from like the best part of a relationship. And like, I, I'm not good when I don't know what's coming. And like, I just didn't think I was going to be able to get a job in Chicago because we had a smaller office. And also like he kind of followed me to Chicago for my summer assignment. And then I left. It was all it was a whole thing. It was a very like uh, I was so emotional. I was so sad. And I can smell the. Uh, I can smell the air of Chicago walking in the morning on a Saturday morning in the crisp air to a uh, watch a college football game at like a local pub. I can like I, I feel the excitement like landing, you know, c- coming in over Lake Michigan and seeing the Hancock building and the Sears Tower and Wrigley Field from above and knowing I'd land soon and see him like I can feel every time it's autumn in Chicago and it's like a little bit overcast. And I think about walking around and thinking like, God, I like, I just wish I could rent an apartment and move here and like be around him all the time. And like, I have so many feelings associated with the fall and with Chicago and I will forever be very like uh, sentimental toward it because even though it's so weird too, because like that was a three or four month period where I wasn't around him and wanted to be so badly and was very unhappy in the other place I was. And that period of time, I mean, it's been years and years and it's I I was just misty talking about it it's like it will always be so incredibly sentimental to me and that is why I like songs that kind of are able to capture these small innocuous moments that you tie to an emotion that's so much greater than the items themselves that they suddenly become um, motifs in in the poetry you'll be writing and reciting the rest of your life about a time you look back on so fondly that represents when you were falling in love and the higher your emotions, the higher your ties are to the environment surrounding you. And I just like, it's so incredibly beautiful. And like at the end when she whispers, like, I hope I never lose you. Like, oh my God, it's so sad. But it's, it's hypothetical, which is crazy. And that's what I missed the first time I listened to it. And I was like, oh God, like this relationship's over. And like, this is really sad. But now I understand the bridge is talking about like, you know, fast forward, you hold my hand, walk me back to that apartment years ago. We were just inside, barefoot in the kitchen, sacred new beginnings. That became my religion lesson. So then religion kind of ties back to don't blame me. It kind of ties back to um, uh, like fall from grace to touch your face kind of kind of goes to false God. Um, barefoot in the kitchen, like and the, the lines like barefoot in the kitchen are every like Kaler shipper is going to, you know, relate to their Vogue shoot. And like in Cruel Summer, uh, snuck into the garden gate. There's pictures of her going in and out of Carly's garden gate. Like Carly was pictured outside of Cornelia Street. Like I understand that there are some clear like uh, what appears to be like pieces of evidence that could tie this closely to that. And I acknowledge it. I just don't freaking know who is who it's about. And I'm not going to take a stance either way. But I acknowledge both sides of the joe shippers the kaler shippers and whoever the hell else you want to ship i have no idea i think the thing is none of us are right we can't accuse each other of being right or wrong because we don't really have any concrete confirmation um but anyways it's a beautiful song i just i don't even know like what else to say i kind of wanted to listen to the beat drop maybe we'll do that like really fast just like enjoy it both um this song and false god in the second set of verses on the second verse it kind of drops and gets upbeat listen Toto, yes, love that. It's so hard to not look like I don't want to get in trouble, but I like want to listen to the songs while I talk about them. It's it's tricky. So she just packed her bags. What's gonna happen? What's gonna happen? 
So then, like, the song really it gets more percussive. It picks up from being, like, a slow song, and I love this part. But also, like, why was she going toward the tunnel? I would think she'd go toward a bridge. Like, if I were in an emotional, difficult, emotionally difficult place, I'd take my talents to Brooklyn or something. Um, but maybe her, like, private airport is in New Jersey. Or maybe she just, I don't know. Can't can a girl just go grab a drink in Secaucus and not be made fun of for it? I mean, whatever she wants to do. Uh I just, I don't know. It's so beautiful. But don't you know, like, agree, it's kind of hard to, hum, baby, hum. <laughs> I just can't sing it. Um, but this is, like, one of her best all time. So good. So beautiful. Uh, this and Cruel Summer, top, top, top. Uh, Death by a Thousand Cuts is also top, top, top for me. If anything, for that bridge, sometimes when I only have, like, a, a, like five seconds before I got to go in somewhere, like, get on a phone call, I'll just, like, fast forward, listen to the bridge, get it out of my system, move on. I still haven't memorized it perfectly. <laughs> I mess up quite a bit. Um, but let me just finish out Cornelia Street, see if I have anything else to say. One second. Wait, I want you guys to listen to this because I've seen on the internet people say like, oh, that's a there's this song at the end that's like windshield wipers or um is uh, a door locking, it's a car door, it's all these things. No, I actually no, I I am I am so convinced because I know this sound. It's the sound it, like of a a record player like a jukebox makes when it's changing the CD or you're like sw- flipping A to B side. Let me, I'm going to find one on the internet and play it for, I'm going to play the song in Cornelia Street and listen closely. It's going to be a little hard to hear, um, but then I'm going to try to find one on the internet. And um, I think this is important because I think it represents the changing, like the, the, there's like a shift happening, right? And I don't know if the shift is like A side to B side. Um, what track is this? Oh, it's nine. It is halfway. Oh, maybe I'm not wrong. This is exciting. I swear to God, I didn't read this somewhere. I though, I, um, I've always turned it up at this part and been like, I know this song. And I'm honestly thinking of myself as a kid at like get, a- asking my parents for coins, like at a jukebox, at like a Fuddruckers or whatever. Like, OK, listen to the end of Cornelia Street. Sorry, this is kind of quiet. Listen closely. Did you hear that? OK, now let me play from YouTube. It's like a 1950s record player. And it's like the sound when there's a new song, like a new CD being selected or I think flipping from A to B side. But like, what does this mean? Like, is she is this like a new album? Is this a new phase of life? If she is at track nine and it's just literally like A to B, like a cutesy thing. I don't know. Listen very carefully. Now listen back to Cornelia Street again. Now listen to this jukebox changing. And now I'm just going to play them back to back. Listen for the pause in the middle.
the problem is that the 1950s one doesn't like have that small drop at the end, but like that's the same noise, isn't it? I just think it's interesting. Anyways, I don't know what it means or if it means anything, but um, you know, something to think about, something to think about. It's a very subtle thing to put in there. Uh, so maybe we've got our A side and B side. So this is a side A. I'm actually going to do part two side B. I still want to, I, I was kind of uh, undershot what I wanted to talk about because uh, I'm actually a little undecided about soon you'll get better. Part of me just thinks like, should we just crank it out and do it and just like have the feelings and get it over with, but also honor the song and honor her experience. Um, should, I do want to talk about Death by a Thousand Cuts, London Boy, False God, Afterglow, but also I just never get to the end of the CD that often. Uh, before going back to again cruel summer and cornelia street um but again not skippers just ones that i don't have as much to talk about beyond that just like it's just a joyful thing to uh be a fan of someone to love their work to get so much satisfaction out of their song and in an era where top 40 music feels like it's some random person with featuring some other random person featuring like a person that's like little baby or baby something or like a dj that wears a helmet and i'm just like who are these people i can't keep up with top 40 and i sound like so old like like what is tiktok like i don't want to be that person but also like i'm just so attached to her and everything she does and i just love having an artist that like i trust and that produces such high quality stuff that always speaks to me no matter how relevant it is to my own life and um i just think she's such a true talent and a person that's i've grown up with she's it's been the soundtrack to my life and like i just even though you know i go in and out with what i'm a fan of what i'm not i have my opinions here and there i like to explore other things that other theories other explanations i don't like to take the the theory i'm most spoon-fed because so often i feel like kind of like the tom hiddleston thing like i'm always trying to figure out what's real and what's not but because i'm a fan and because i care and because uh i see a lot of myself in her and i think a lot of us do and i think that's what the all we can really ask for in the uh, public figures we identify with is is there some element uh, that represents you that makes you feel a little less alone, that makes you feel represented in this art and that makes you feel like a part of something bigger? And I think that's what's so beautiful about Taylor Swift. And that's what she does for all of us. And, uh, you know, just some food for thought, I guess. Um, I got a jet. Um, I'm going to play what brought me to my knees last night. I was like crying listening to it. It's called. Um, oh, I, I need to give them credit because I want you to look them up on YouTube. I hope they don't mind me playing an excerpt. It's called Epic Orchestra. Uh, and it's a uh, cruel summer on Epic Orchestra. And it just like, I don't, this song is just absolutely, I was, it's absolutely enchanting on and in an, an instrumental form as is Cornelia street, all too well as is blank space. Couldn't recommend it higher, more highly. And I hope you enjoy. And I'll be back to review the back nine and, um, we'll make it a lot quicker though. Cause I did a lot of intro stuff with this. And I think I talked about the American girls, which I might cut out, but we'll see. Anyway, guys, I love you so much. Thank you, as always, for your time, commitment, your support. Uh, thank you for just letting this be fun and not overthinking any of my analysis. I love you so much. I'll catch you on the flip side. Oh, that's like a record, um, like a figure of speech. Funny. Don't forget to uh, uh, rate and review five stars if you feel so compelled. Patreon.com slash be there in five for more bonus episodes, bonus content. Uh, look up on Facebook, be there in five's totally casual, breezy Facebook group. We're like approaching 3,000 members. I um. I've been trying to like keep it small, keep it tight because I want people to get along, establish some more rules. You know, I think we're doing a good job so far. Have some more mods. It's a fun place. It's a happy place. Talk about a lot of different things. Taylor Swift being one. Um, all I ask is that you answer the questions in full and most people don't. So if you haven't gotten in, that's probably why because I just filter out people that don't answer the questions in full. And um, yeah, would love to have you. Would love to further engage. It's a fun place to talk about all things 
pop culture to personally connect with one another. And I just like love having a community of people with like, you know, that are like-minded. It's really, it's really, really cool. And uh, lastly, do not forget, please, to support ButcherBox at butcherbox.com slash be there in five or use code be there in five. All right, guys, I love you. As always, let me know your thoughts and I will let you know mine. I'll be there in five, I swear. Bye.